There's a podcast that sure all the rock's heart is gold and they're climbing the stairway to eleven when they get there they know the record stores are all closed but online they can get what they came Welcome to episode three of the Stairway to Eleven podcast. My name is George. This is John. And I'm TR. Welcome back to episode three. Today we've got another three albums for you to enjoy and we will tell you about them. First up, John, what is our first album today? All right. So for those of you not familiar, Zebra is a band out of New Orleans that got their start in the mid-70s. It's the same three guys for almost 50 years now that started the band in 1975. They released an album, their first, they released, they've released four so far, but the first came out in 1983 and it was called Zebra. So it's their, you know, they don't do the Led Zeppelin one, two, three, four. They just did Zebra, Zebra. So it's a hard rock AOR album for the most part. It's got some prog overtones in it. If you don't know what AOR is, there's about eight different definitions of this, but it really Album just oriented both. rock. Thank you. But a lot of people like to say it's adult oriented rock. No, actually it started out supposedly just FM radio rock type format, you know, but it, it boils down to album oriented rock. Features three guys, Randy Jackson on guitar, synths and vocals, Felix Henneman, on bass and keyboards and synths and Guy Gelso on drums. If you're not familiar with this band, they were pretty big on MTV in the early years. But two big songs that came out on the first album, most notably Who's Behind the Door, which is a song that got me really into them, and the song Tell Me What You Want. They had other songs that were on MTV years later, like Wait Until the Summer's Gone, Bears, which was, everyone seems to know Bears, I guess, because it's hard to understand what he's singing during the song. He was in the hard rock scene. Uh, he was Axl Rose before Axl Rose existed, to be <laughs> honest with you, because he he has a quite a range of low to highs, and he gets really high. But Want to get high? The, but that's kind of the charm of his, his singing abilities. It's a three-piece band. They, If you see them live, which I have actually seen them live back in 1985 when they opened for Sammy Hagar on his VOA tour. And I thought Zebra blew him off the stage with just saying something because Sammy at that time was pretty awesome live. It was just amazing to see them. It's just three guys. And generally it's, while Felix plays bass, he also plays a lot of keys and synths most of the show. So it's it almost looks like you know, Led Zeppelin at times up there with a guitar and just keyboards and drums or Rush for that matter, or even ELP if you want to go really deep in the woods for the prog nerds out there. So first album, like I said, came out in 1983, two big hits that were on the album. For me, this was a really important album because I really cut my teeth on this band. I, I got hooked instantly. I absolutely love the first album and I love it for a lot of different reasons. But the main reason I like is because I think the songs are great, but I also thought they were great musicians, which is kind of evident in their playing. Whether you like them or not, you can tell they can play. They're not just up there 
Nikki Six in it on bass. Sorry, I couldn't resist. They they kind of have an early history like Van Halen and Twisted Sister. They started out as a covers band. They're a Led Zeppelin covers band. They've been they've been compared to Led Zeppelin their whole career. You can hear the influence. I don't think they sound like them all the time, but you can hear the influence. But they were a covers band. And if you know anything about Van Halen and Twisted Sister early on, they used to play to huge crowds mm-hmm. before they had record contracts. I mean, Twisted mm-hmm. Sister was at the Palladium in Long Island or whatever, in New York, in front of 3,000 people, didn't have a recording contract. Yeah, You know, Van Halen used to play these massive backyard, they used to call them backyard shows, but like literally 1,000 people would show up to someone's backyard. It was <laughs> insane yeah. back then. Well, Zebra was like that too. They were a huge band in New Orleans in the 70s playing basically Led Zeppelin covers and, you know, a lot of prog rock covers because they were fans of of early prog rock and slipping in their own songs here and there. And while not as abundant in, of demos like Van Halen, if you're a Van Halen fan, you can find all these old demos. There are demos out there of all their early stuff. And they're similar to Van Halen in that every album's got a song from somewhere prior to their first album on subsequent albums. So... Other than that, they put out three albums and then got dropped by Atlantic in the uh, late 80s, early 90s and have never really got the notoriety I thought they deserved. I personally think they're underrated and I think they're underappreciated. It's not for everyone. They don't. Some people don't like their style. I, I think they're great, although I, I do kind of weigh in on some of their more AOR-ish type stuff. I think they're better when they stick to the hard rock and, and with the slight proggy overtones they don't have to necessarily be prog for me to like it but they put out a fourth album about 80 or 2003 i think and they've toured consistently since then without really putting out music they do shows predominantly on the east coast and in the gulf states primary new orleans and the uh, kind of new york area randy jackson does a lot of solo acoustic stuff around the country yep they're, they're just still working musicians and that's, that's what they cool. love to do. Yeah. And they've, they're, they know everybody. It seems like everybody knows them in the scene. They just never got their due. There's a lot of bands like that. Like King's X is a band that never really got their due. Mm. Although I think probably more people know King's X than Zebra. So, yeah. so that's my little opening on them. I don't know if you guys want to add anything. You know, uh, I, I don't know if it was, I think it was last episode. We were talking about how certain, I think it was the, I, was, I think it was the Fagan thing that if you grow up hearing something, it sticks with you a lot more than if you come back to it 30 years later and you're like, eh, you know, this is okay, but it's not really my thing now. So, the, you know, given that, I think it's a testament to this album that I still really liked it. You know, I'm on, I, on one hand, I am like, kind of like, yes, yeah, it's so dated. And I probably would have loved this when I was, you know, a teenager. So the fact that I do actually still dig a bunch of these songs, that's a testament to how good it must really be. Yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up. I just was going to say that it's interesting you say that, George, because, yes, it does a little sound a little bit dated. So if you go back and listen to something they have called the workshop demos, you can hear some of these songs that were written in the late eight or 70s that sound like 70s songs. Like they have a song called wait until the summer's gone. That's off their second album. Uh-huh. It's a pretty heavy tune. It had a lot of MTV airplay, but it sounds like it's a mid eighties song. Okay. If you go back and listen to the like 1978 demo version of it, it still sounds like the same song, 
but now it sounds like it's a, a 70s song. So it's got that little bit of a bluesy guitar sound to it, just a little bit. They're not synths there. They're keyboards there. You know, they used a lot of synths on this album. You can hear mm-hmm. it. It's obvious. Yeah. Kind of like when not, White Snake Reed did Here I Go Again. You know, that's a good example because the early versions got that kind of bluesy, mm-hmm. late 70s, 1980 sound. And then you hear the new version and it's like overprocessed. Yeah. So now I know a lot of fans, uh, you mentioned it sounded dated. A lot of fans have complained that they don't like the production on the first album. And I tend to agree. The original. I don't think it was that bad production wise. And, you know, most things are dated to the era that they came from. So it's not like, you know, a bad thing. It's just that if you weren't there to to latch onto it when it came out, you don't have the same Mm -hmm. nostalgia for something. I think when they finally remastered them, I think a few years back, they gave the album more pop. Mm. It it sounded not brighter. It just sounded and not bigger. It like just sounded like had a snap to it. Yeah. And then when you go back and listen to the demos from the late seventies, you're like, ah, okay. So they were trying to get to this, but they got hung up in the eighties. And now <laughs> and this will come up a lot. At least when I talk about the songs, I mentioned they use synths a lot. You can't let that get in the way of this because right. the synths aren't the kind of, new wave or are kind of post-punk sense they're kind of layers yes. more than anything else and he does solo a lot when he plays but he plays like a 70s keyboard player using current technology without it being over the top so i would say think like peter gabrielson type work uh-huh. which was never the kind of poppy almost new wavish sound they were more layers to add to the kind of arty sound that they're trying to create so lush right Yes, that's a great word. So if that's, if we got anything else, I'll kick right into the songs. We want to get started. Yeah, no, I just, one one thing I just, I wanted to completely agree with you after listening to this album, because I'd never listened to this entire album before. And I agree, this is, this is a really underrated band. It's, it's, it's kind of a shame that they didn't get their due because I, I kind of think that they got eclipsed by a few other bands that, you know, might have been kind of similar in this style, which is unfortunate because they've got a really tasteful use of the 12 string guitar throughout this album that I really love. And there weren't a lot of bands doing that. And I knew this was going to come up. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to talk about this, you know, with, you know, a number of these songs, but, but that I think, that layer and that that piece of of some of these songs i think really lends a a really i'm looking for the word but basically it's just like a a a richness to this album that a lot of bands were not using at this time in terms of like like 12 string guitar stuff really didn't get used a lot other than by you know a handful of bands you know like Yes was doing a little bit of that. Rush was doing a little bit of that. I mean, it gets sprinkled in here and there, but these guys just really had the very tasteful use of that throughout this album. Not not every song, obviously, but but you know, the the more epic songs get the twelve string on this album, and and yeah, I definitely feel like these. You definitely called it, John. These guys are underrated and and it's it's underappreciated and it's a kind of a shame because I I I I completely agree with you. So it's interesting you bring that up. I watched an interview uh, Randy Jackson did 
I guess on some local PBS, you know, in uh, Long Island, talking to a woman, I guess he's known for years and she has her own show. I saw it on YouTube. She asked him about the 12 string and he said to her, he says, well, I pretty much only play 12 string now. I don't play anything else. He's like, I'm used to it. I know how to play it. He says, he just got to, you know, bend the strings a little harder. He says, that's mm-hmm. all it is. This is really not that hard. And I'm kind of laughing because I'm like, well, it really wasn't that hard. Everyone would do it, Randy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you need strings players. on a 12 string? Get out of here. Yeah. And so yeah. I think what it, it's a testament to the fact that he got accustomed to playing a 12 string. Because if you watch any live stuff, which I would suggest if you guys are interested, there's I can send you some YouTube stuff that I'm shocked that's out there. I, I'm surprised. He comes out and he'll play his six string. And the next song, he's got the double neck. Mm-hmm. And he plays it the rest of the night. Yeah. He never takes it away. And I'm like, other guys would bring it out. Like, let's be honest, as much as I love Rush, that was a big deal to show off the double oh, necks yeah. a little bit. When that you know? came out, like everybody loses their minds. It's like, look at my double neck. Thank yeah. like, oh, I have a triple neck, you know. And, <laughs> Cheap trick. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And, and it was, Steve Vai was notorious for having the double side <laughs> yeah. splitting. And Frank, not Frank Marino. Oh, God, what is this? The guitarist who has that same thing. He plays blood. Like he does. D'Angelo something? Yeah, that's, that's who it is. And all he does is just do his, his neck work only. And he doesn't mm-hmm. even pick on it. It's really funny. Uh, but he actually got accustomed to playing a double neck and switching back and forth all the time. And it, it's so effortless that you're right. You can actually pick it out in the songs. And I think that's because he's always playing it all the time, which is mm-hmm. kind of unique for a guitar player. And he sings and he high pitches when he sings, which, you know, I think that's why they got compared to Led Zeppelin a lot yeah. because the guitar work is similar you can debate who's the better guitar player. I mean, Jimmy Page is great, but he could be a little loose with his playing sometimes. Wow. But you yeah. can hear the influence on some of Randy Jackson's playing and some of his solos. So anyway, if we want, we'll I'll get right into the songs. Wait. The first song off the album is probably one of their their best songs, at least by money fans. It's got a ton of airplay. It got a lot of MTV play. I remember it. And it's what hooked me too, along with who's behind the door. But the opening track is tell me what you want. And it's a little bit of, I wouldn't say it's a ballsy intro, but it is interesting that it just starts out with him singing and playing acoustic guitar to start it out. And you're thinking, Oh, what's this? Oh boy. You know, <laughs> tell me what you want, dude. And then it just builds up and just, kicks into this kind of i wouldn't say it's an anthem but it has kind of that anthemic feel to it a little bit yeah it's got the heavy guitars it's got heavy synths in it and it's got this kind of wailing chorus of tell me what you want where he goes from his regular singing voice to this high pitch that is somewhat controlled but he gets really up there and i made the the joke that he was axel rose before axel rose he really was because he has that i don't know if he has the same octave range that Axl Rose has because he does have quite, he did have quite a range when he was in his peak, but he has this kind of range. He can go from really low to pretty high. I have a different comparison, but I'll get to that. Okay. I only used him because his vocals get so high. And there was times when Axl's vocals would get really, really high, you know, in some songs and you could never figure out, well, why does he just sing like this? His lower register. He's actually, he's a pretty good singer. I sometimes feel that way with Brandy Jackson. Sometimes like, I wish he wouldn't go so high on some songs, Hmm. but 
I think it's a great opening track. It's easy to sing to if you want to sing. It's easy to jam to if you want to do that. It's a good hard rock song. It's got some slight AOR to it, just a tiny bit, but it's more, I think, rock than anything else. And I think the synths kind of add those layers we were talking about. He, I, I don't know if he's, they're not playing foot pedals, but and you guys might know better than I do because I've never played keyboards or synths, but he must be playing some kind of a, a synth bass with one of them because he's got about four or five on stage when he plays i'm guessing he's covering the bass parts with one of his hands when he's playing so yeah probably anyway it's a great opening track i i think if if there was a song you wanted to tell somebody to listen to that's never heard this band before i would pick this one first because it's while they do a lot of acoustic stuff this is the one that kind of kicks in with with the rock feel to it right away and it's immediate it just doesn't waste any time getting into it so yeah let's let's say you guys about this so this is the only song i'm familiar with off this album so in terms of being the one to recommend you're spot on there i really like it the vocals on the chorus they get that as you mentioned i I, it's a kind of a harsher quality a screechy quality and it reminds me of dave king from fastway well it's funny you should bring that up george because fastway and zebra were lumped together as the uh new wave of led zeppelin bands I remember this in 83. Yeah. That's that's a great pull. I love how he's just like, tell me what you want. <laughs> it's very, I don't know. It's That sound itself is very dated, but it's a dated sound that I already love. So it's like comes preloaded <laughs> in my brain that I'm like, yes, okay, this is good. Because well, yeah, if you're a prog metal fan, you should love this. Because every <laughs> prog band from the late 80s, early 90s had a screamer. <laughs> the the early 80s called just to say hello. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> yeah, this one's a definite earworm, I think. So Yeah. Yeah, I I also felt this was a really strong rocking song. I remember this being on the radio. I got the 45. And and you know, lyrically. I think everybody's been in a relationship where you've been like, just tell me what you want, right? Like I just, you know, help me out here because I'm trying to make this work and I just can't figure it out, right? Help like, me to help you. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 you know, like I said before in previous things, like on on this podcast, you know, lyrics are not my thing, but on this podcast, I have been, you know, with especially with albums I'm not as familiar with or songs I'm not as familiar with, I have been reading the lyrics as I listen to the songs to get more, uh, to try to get a fuller understanding of what it's all about, right? And so, so I've been, you know, literally every song that we that we go over and every album, I'm I'm looking at the lyrics and and you know, making an assessment of like, okay how did the lyrics fit with the music and and how does the music, you know, either complement that or, or the lyrics complement the music, et cetera. And, and so, you know, this is rocking. It definitely is something that I think everybody that's ever been in a relationship can, you know, relate to because I think we've all been there where it's just like, okay, I can't read your mind and I need some help here knowing what's going on. And that's kind of what this song is about. And so anyway, I think it it hits all the kinds of things that you'd want in a, in a rock and song like this completely agree with everything like vocally, like, yes, he's, 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 you know, his falsetto is way up there. 
Uh, I agree that, you know, his, his low register also sounds really good. And, and I kind of agree with you, John, there's times where it's like, okay, I get what you're trying to do. And that that's kind of the sound that people were trying to get in that day, you know, to either copy Zeppelin or copy, you know, like some of these high bands that, you know, with, with these vocalists that had these, these really high vocals, but, you know, I think he could have easily just kind of sprinkled that in a little less in, in terms of, you know, overall, but, but I, I'm not against it. I, I mean, I, I, I like his vocals. I like, I like the, everything on this album pretty much overall. Yeah. It's interesting. You guys bring that up and then you bring up the lyrical content to things. I'll say real quick is that in this particular song, you almost feel his angst the higher he goes when he says, tell me what you want. <laughs> yeah. The level of frustration is like mounting. You're like my man, Randy, what's going on? You know? And the second thing, which is interesting. And now I have not gone through all the lyrics. However, that people, people can't see this, but hold on. You know, the whole time I was thinking that this was like a lament of like a drive through worker, but it's just me. <laughs> I have my original. 1983 ah, nice. print and it is actually a special one because it does come uh-huh. with the lyrics Ooh. not those cheap like bmg clear plastic shitty things <laughs> I hate like, my, like my sabbath ones have <laughs> but i need to go back and read the lyrics because one thing i notice about these lyrics is that while they are about relationships they stick to actually relationships and not about you know, the white snake type or death leffer type lyrics or the Van Halen lyrics, you know, what you're like, come on guys, really? Another song about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have that, but they put a twist on it. Right. And it's, it's done slightly so we'll get, different. We'll get to that a little yeah. later. But that's what I mean. I mean, they, I think that's what probably sunk them is that some of their lyrics, while they might be all about the same things are a little headier than mm. some of the other bands, but sorry, moving on. Second song, One More Chance. This is a song they wrote back in the late 70s, and it kind of is interesting because this, I love this song, but there's something about it that kind of irks me a little. It starts out with this really cool, all the songs seem to start with this really cool synth layered background sound that kind of leads you into the song. And then he comes in with some really cool guitar work and some nice soloing, and it almost feels like you're kind of floating this ethereal feel, and he has this really cool vocal at the beginning and then it kicks into the you know just one more chance kind of thing and it sounds very 80s and it sounds very aor-ish at first but as the song goes on if you notice then the backing vocals get a little more aggressive you know and it's interesting how i I think the song kind of sways that way a little bit it starts out this way but then as it moves on getting closer towards the guitar so it's not a long song it's only three and a half minutes it just picks up a little more steam, I think, and it picks up a little more aggression. But this is probably one of those songs that mixes everything about them all in a compact three and a half minute song. So it's a cool song. Not as big on the chorus on this one, because I feel like all the atmospheric stuff when he's doing his verse, when he's singing, and the kind of cool atmospheric guitar soloing going on is really nice. But I see why they picked the song up because it is the second song on the album and you do want to have some kind of oomph behind a second song and not just kind of deadpan into something like ballady or ethereal type song. So I like this one. It's good. It's one of their older songs and I've always been a fan of it and they seem to play it a lot still this day. Solid song. Yeah. When I was listening to it, I was actually wondering if I knew this one as well. 
because it just sounded kind of familiar. But then I was like, well, maybe I just remember this from listening to it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but I like I like how he goes into the the fast way style vocals again for the chorus. It was a pretty catchy tune. I liked it. Yeah, and I I really like the cool stuff going on with the drums at the end. Like like you said, it, it builds and there's like this just killer drum stuff going on at the end that I thought was really cool. And again, another relationship song, right? And and I don't know if this is like the answer to the first song, right? Tell me what you want, <laughs> I, you know. And it's just like, well, just give me one more chance, right? <laughs> so I, I I'm not Slow sure. Down. There was, don't know if that was kind of intentional or anything, but like, yeah, I mean, it, another another kind of relationship song where it's just like, okay, we've been in this position too, right? Like you've all been in a relationship where you're like, ah, oh, just give me one more chance. We can make this work. We can do this. And so it's very relatable, right? That, that's, that's kind of the point I'm making with some of these, some of these songs anyway. That's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at all the titles and I'm like, you can just like put all it these. It reads like a story. As I said before, who's behind the door? Yeah. <laughs> when you get it's there, it. take your fingers from my hair. Yeah. Don't walk away. <laughs> it's, I was just going to say, if uh, it would be really cool if you ran into the, to them specific. I think Randy Jackson writes most of their music or wrote most of their music and just say, okay, I'm going to ask you this now. The tracking on this album, is this done on purpose? Because they all seem <laughs> to lyric thematically match each other, like you just said, TR. Mm. We're just following up or here we go with the next. And it's kind of funny because. A loose it, concept album. Yeah, you're looking yeah. at these titles, you're thinking, huh, how did I miss this all these oh, years later? <laughs> yeah. So, all right, so moving on to the third track. The third track's a little odd on this album uh, because it's a cover song. It's a song called Slow Down, which was originally written by Larry Williams. It's a rock and roll song from 1958. However, they kind of inject some lyrics from Carl Perkins' Blue Suede Shoes in the song. Uh-huh. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of a song, but it's, structurally the song from Larry Williams. And it's a cool song. It's a rock and roll song. It's a late fifties rock and roll song. And for somebody to say, listening to this album, they might like, that's an odd choice. But if you're back in 1983 and you're thinking, well, they're writing these songs, whatever, late seventies, early eighties, trying to get a contract. This period where this song came out was only roughly 20 years, 20 away. years earlier. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not, and, and, and it, that that's pretty typical when, when, you know, there's always a look back to that time, like 20 years prior and they draw from that stuff. Right. And this is what he was probably listening to as a kid growing right. up because mm-hmm. he's 68 now. So, I mean, he's, when you think about it, only 13 years older, 14, 15 years older than us, but this is what he was listening to probably as his drawback. Right. And or an inspiration, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that strikes me about this song, well, I find it odd because I'd rather have a original song from them. Right. I thought about this a little bit and I, somebody had made a comment. Is it you guys are guitar players? Is it Steve Hoffman? What's the forum online? That's a, it's a really big oh. forum. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's like a real audiophile guy, right? Yeah, and a lot of guitar junkies hang out in there, and they everyone's yeah. talking studio stuff. And someone had brought up, can you imagine? It was a zebra topic in this form. Had they included "Wait Until the Summer's Gone" and "Bears" on their first album, it would be considered one of the great debut albums by a rock band. And I thought that would have been awesome. 
And then I realized, yeah, but then the second album wouldn't be really good at all. <laughs> yeah, what would be left? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, because while the second album's a good album, it, it is a considerable drop. Yes. But you see, yeah. if if they had done that and had been such a big, huge band, they would have brought in like Desmond Child or somebody for the second album and they'd have had plenty of great tracks. So, yeah. Or Mutt Lang. Or Mutt Lang. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. you go. So now I feel comfortable with this song on there. And when you listen to this song, it is, it's typical rock and roll. And if you're older, like we are, we still heard this stuff when we were kids. It was still on the radio. Yep. You still, sure. Sean and I was still showing up on Sunday nights on your television. On yep. ABC, yep. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. And so, and what I noticed about this song, and if you don't recognize it, you might realize that the Beatles also covered it and did a pretty cool version of it back in the sixties. Yep. Mm-hmm. They sound like they played this song a million times. Yeah. It sounds like it's been in their repertoire for years and it sounds like it's them actually playing. It doesn't sound like a band that's just throwing a cover together. I'm not a big fan of covers. I, I've said this on the Metalheads podcast a lot, but there's a few I do like, like a Legion's version of uh, subdivisions I thought was outstanding because they made it their own, but it still sounded like the song. Yeah. And I feel like do that with this song. It just sounds like they play this. And I finally saw a live version of them playing this. It's like, God damn, they're good. Uh, <laughs> you know, so. Right. But there's really not much to say about it. It's just, it's if you, if you don't know what I mean by rock and roll, just think those late 50s guys out there just banging away and creating all the stuff that all your gods from the 70s that you worship what they got hooked on and got them to start playing guitar, you know, uh-huh. when they picked them up in the late sixties. So uh, not much to say about it other than it's, it's out of place, but at the same time, it is kind of a cool song. So, so not to knock on this, but I get a bit of a Ted Nugent vibe from this one, <laughs> which has absolutely nothing to do with him. <laughs> no, but funny. it's just sort of a reminiscent sound. So that turned me off instantly. So uh, this is probably like my, like least favorite song on the album. It sounds nothing like the rest of the album, but it does have a cool groove. I'm not totally knocking. I mean, the, the Nugent thing's just more of a joke. Um, well, which is funny because he actually used to cover a lot of those rock and roll type bands at some of his live shows in the seventies. Right. It was like land of a thousand dances and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So anyway, no, I, I agree, John. I, 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 in fact, I wrote those exact words. It sounds out of place, you know, like, the style of this song is kind of too far out from the rest of this album. I agree. Like it, it doesn't really mesh well with, with their, with their original material, but I will agree that like, it definitely sounds like they had a good time doing this, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you can tell, like, this is like them having a really fun time. Like they love this. Right. And it's and very it comes raw. Through, yeah, right. It's it's it you can yeah, it, it has a very loose feel, very raw feel and just like pretty much like a very authentic, I guess a very authentic live version of this cuz it it sounded live to me. You know, uh-huh. it sounded like what yeah. they would do in a live format, not really a studio track. Maybe if they'd put it at the end of the album it would fit Yeah, better. exactly. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. I kind of wonder, like, if you change the tracking a little bit and you put this at the end, it sounds a little more live, it's fun, and then you kind of feel like, yeah, okay, that ends the album. But I think they wanted to make more of a statement than that, which is what they did with the last song. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I felt like this was kind of disposable in terms of the rest of the songs on this album. 
Oh, but, I agree. It's because it's I, not that it's not their yeah, song. So. Exactly. Yeah, I kind of felt like okay, I get it. You like this, and you had a fun time, but it's like you kind of not part of the inside joke. I guess that's kind of how I felt about it. Interesting thing when I saw them play this live on a video clip, he doesn't go anywhere near his piano on this. He plays straight bass the whole time. Hmm. So it may sound live in the studio, but I'm I'm guessing that they had to layer it. Oh, to get yeah. the bass parts in there because he's right. There's both bass and piano. Oh yeah, this. like this boogie woogie kind of. And that's what it does. It has that rock style. and roll boogie style to yeah, it. Right. So it's followed up by what I consider to be one of their best songs they've ever written. It's a song they use a lot as an opener. I can't see it not being an opener or the first song in an encore, and that's the fourth song called "As I Said Before." This is another one of their songs from the '70s. This is a sadly short song and there is a longer version of this song out there in the demos that's about five minutes long and when i listened to it again the other day i was like son of a bitch because this song is just it's a killer tune it's even better live than it is on this album because he injects some really cool guitar work while he's not singing in between you know lyrics he, he has guitar parts that are very reminiscent actually of Jimmy Page. Some things Jimmy Page used to do live that he didn't do on album that he injected, like on Celebration Day, he injects little bits and pieces on the live version of that song. This is what Randy Jackson does on this song too. Yeah, This is them at their power trio best, the three of them. It's heavy, it's, it's a catchy song. It's got a killer riff and it's pretty straightforward. And, and brings a lot. There's there's not much AOR to this. This is just a hard mm-hmm. rock song. Yeah. And it kind of the way they have it on the album structure, it leads into another great song, the way they they close the song out and open the next one. So but one of my favorites from them by far. Yeah, this is back in the lane I prefer to hear from them. And I was listening to this and it made me think that they should have opened for spinal tap. I just I don't know. I just kind of got the feel like these guys would have got along the, 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 you know, similar, similar type of sound, I guess, for that era, at least from like the, the music guitar drum perspective, but they, they seem a little more legitimate. That's, that's the only thing. Well, I, yes, I, I, I know, but a, I'm just saying I could, level of, I could see them touring together here that, you, you know, I don't know. I kind of feel, are like, you, are you disparaging the tap? No, but I will say that, like, compared to Zebra, I don't think, I don't think that, they, I mean, there's, there's, there's just a level of sophistication that I'm I not even sure that, how to respond to this right yeah, now. Yeah. So make sure you put your pinky out when you say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With your white glove. Yeah. Smell the, smell the glove. Yes. <laughs> anyway, what's next, John? No, well, I just oh, well, yeah. sorry, have my comments about this. No, um, no, you you have uh, forfeited that <laughs> right. So, yeah, so a quick, I, I, I definitely like the riffs in this tune, and the solo was phenomenal. Like that, that, that throughout this album, I, I, you know, there are numerous little notes that I put, and and half of the time I said the solo is great, the tasty, tasty solo. <laughs> so, Randy Jackson is phenomenal. I, I actually did see him, John, back in 2013 on a, an acoustic solo tour that he did. Oh, you did? Oh. Yes. And, and it was, it was awesome. And so, really? yeah. And, and he, he is, he's a, he's an incredible player and it, and, and you're right. Like he sprinkles all these really tasteful guitar things throughout this album. 
in addition to the, you know, rock and riffs, he can back it up with really amazing solos and, and just like, just ripping it. So yeah, I agree. Great song. Yeah. If you were going to, if there is going to be a comparison to Zeppelin, I think this is probably the song. I think that this is structurally like a little bit of later era Zeppelin in some parts, but the kind of power and the drive and it's, there's no, we're not going to have any kind of catchy chorus here. This is going to be balls to the wall type song. And that's, this is their song on the album where it does that. And it ends sadly short, like I said, because there's an additional two plus minutes, I think to the song are roughly two minutes that are in the demos, but it goes right into probably their most recognizable song, both for the song, for the title, for the lyrics. And that's the song who's behind the door. It's another song they had written, I guess, back in the late seventies that starts out with this kind of, it almost, it's funny when I heard this again, the other day, it made me think of when Queensryche dropped silent lucidity and it caught everyone by surprise because it was acoustic and it has this buildup. And it builds to this big, massive ending. Well, Zebra did that too, but just like seven years before that, when it was at least release wise. (laughs) And that's the type of song it is. It it starts out with him on acoustic guitar singing. It actually starts with him playing just acoustic guitar for a while. The kind of synths kind of come in and lay the layers down. Then the drums come in and then they play as a semi-acoustic band, but full band. And he's singing these lyrics, which are they about what happens after you die? Are they about life out there in the cosmos? You know, is that? Yeah, I was. It, I thought. It, I don't know. Is it benevolent aliens or angels? Yeah, I'm not I mean, quite sure. Nobody knows, and he. I don't know if it's really been answered, but you can kind of, you know, what happens when I open when I die and I open that door? You know, what's what am I going to find on the other side? And it kind of leaves you wondering. And I think that's kind of the charm of this song and the allure is that you can actually gravitate to the lyrics of it without it being too heady but it's heady enough for you to make you think the playing on this song is outstanding. It builds into this crazy ending. It's almost bombastic without being seventies bombastic. You know, (laughs) it's not ELP bombastic Emerson Lake and Palmer bombastic, (laughs) (laughs) but it is. And it has a big, huge ending. There's just swirling sense and atmosphere. He has this kind of frenetic guitar solo. It's almost more like just noise than it is him playing notes and it builds and builds just to kind of end and slowly fade out. And it's, I've seen them play this song and be it as of this year. Well, no, next couple of years, it'd be 40 years since I last saw them, which is a bummer for me to think that I was just blown away seeing them do this. And he, he'll sit there on acoustic. He doesn't play the modern technology game and, you know, run his acoustic through his electric. He sits in a chair and plays this on acoustic guitar, which is kind of wild to see that their stage presence is okay. I mean, he walks around and stuff when he plays, but it's kind of weird to see a dude sitting in a chair playing acoustic guitar and then the band playing behind him with all Mm -hmm. this noise. This was huge on MTV, got a lot of airplay. It gets a lot of radio airplay still. You still hear it on classic rock on xm sirius xm you still hear it if you have satellite tv for the music stations for the rock stations it's played constantly and this is this is their calling card this is the song that that probably got their break this and tell me what you want two completely opposite polar songs that kind of showcase all the facets of the band so if you had to hear a second song from the band Mm -hmm. this would be the second then (laughs) so so 
my notes are this one opens like it wants to be a rush song at the same time i feel like there's a little bit of ozzy's mama i'm coming home in the guitars sometimes too just kind of the jangly melodic i don't know that's just what came to mind while i was listening to it it is a little jangle rockish and some of his his it's well, like, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, he's bringing the 12 string again, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so that's, that's really like, that's, that's another, that's what I put on this, like awesome 12 string work. I heard a Zeppelin influence, but I agree, George, there were, there were some very rush moments to this and, you know, it, it, it just, you can tell it's like definitely one of their masterworks, right? Like in the pantheon of zebra tunes, like this is definitely up at the top. Mm-hmm. And I definitely I'm hearing this on the radio when it came out, you know, I, and I just remember, you know, just thinking this is a really cool tune, you know, it, it's pretty ballsy for one of your early singles too, when you think about it, because you have to be sort of established to have a song that comes out with just acoustic guitar for about 30 seconds you know, and then him just kind of singing and some background stuff going on before it builds up. There's not too many bands. Usually when bands get away with that, it's because they've already got tons of other hits and singles and they're a radio mainstay. Well, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, is the, the quality is there, right? right? So, I mean, if you've got the quality, then it doesn't matter how you bring it in, right? And, and, and yeah, I agree, John, there, you know, a lesser band trying to do something like this, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go over. I don't think. Right. But, but with the skills and the, and the musicianship of this band, you, it, you know, it, it works. And, and I think, you know, even though this is their first album, like you said, they'd been playing for years and it, it just, to me, it's, it's, you, you've got uh, a phenomenally written song and, and it's well played because they're, they're, you know, great musicians and it comes through. Right. So that's side a of the album. We'll move to side B now. Flip it over. Flip it over. (laughs) Pick the needle up. Yeah. And I'll make sure there's no dust on the side. That's right. Because we're old enough to remember these on vinyl, not like vinyl today where you got like, Oh, I bought a 60 minute LP. It's a triple vinyl, you know, <laughs> back then they jammed that whole vinyl on the one. That's right. Yeah. You know, and it sounded like shit, but they did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So the next track, so we get into a track now. I like this song. It's called when you get there, it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's nothing like out of the norm here that sets them apart. It's, it's one of those songs where you get the AOR feel to them. It's got a catchy chorus line. It's got mm-hmm. some nice guitar work in it. And it's got kind of a cool mid-paced riff to start it out. <laughs> it's if you're gonna talk about memorable songs on the album, maybe this is one that catches you individually, but I don't know if it catches the whole group of people. Solid song. It's not a bad song at all. It's a good song. But it's not like who's behind the door, tell me what you want. It's not gonna grab you like mm-hmm. that. Right. And probably a nice piece for them to throw in sets when they play to mix it up a little because it is a more mid-paced song. And there's really not much to say. As much as I love this album and I like this song, it's like, eh, it's there. Yeah. It's opening the second side of the album. <laughs> I said, the snarly vocals are back. And in, in, in relation to that, I also wrote, this brings to mind Fastway mixed <laughs> with Night Ranger. 
I'm going to stop you right there and just tell you that first <laughs> Night Ranger album is freaking awesome. I yeah. don't care what anybody says. What's the I second one? Brad second Gillis one is, is good. Yeah, it's that good. guy's an amazing guitar player. Yeah, so is Jeff Watson. They're both great. Yeah. But I like the pull in Night Ranger because I saw them open for Sammy. The tour before I saw Zebra open for Sammy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they knocked it out of the park, too. Yeah. You know, so nice pull, George. Continue, please. <laughs> that was pretty much all I had. It was, you know, it was cool. I liked it. Yeah. I, I You know, at first, I, I don't know what it was about, like, it, it, you know, because because the the cadence of the lyric or of the chorus, you know, when you get there, when you get there, when you get there, it just it seems kind of off. But the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this is really catchy. <laughs> like it just gets stuck in your mind, you know, maybe that was the point, right? Well, it probably was. And and so actually, you know, this is this is a song I alluded to earlier when you talk about a complicated relationship song, right? So I read the lyrics and it's 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 basically the dude talking about his girlfriend who seems to be sleeping with another woman for a one night stand and he catches her in a lie and she's got to kind of fess up to it. And so that's heavy for the early 80s. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, whoa, OK, I did not expect that when I started reading the lyrics, you know, and, and actually looking at this, it kind of took me by surprise a little. Wow. Again, you know, we are talking about relationships just slightly different than what you're used to. That's right. You know, a little bit dysfunctional. I want to pull back something you said, TR, earlier about Guy Gelsow's drumming on this. This song has kind of a cool little drum thing he does during the verse section. He kind of, you know, they're doing this mid-pace riffing. He does a kind of cool little thing. It's not knocking anything out of the park, but it just kind of adds to the the mid pace riff. I thought that was was noticeable from him, and it's nothing mm-hmm. special, just little things that you notice. Mm-hmm. You, know, you guys are guitar players, so you probably notice little things that other people don't. I notice these little drum bits here and there, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. I kind of like how it stands out. So, mm-hmm. all right, moving it along, because I don't want to take the whole, too much more time here. But come to the seventh song, which to me is a crown jewel of their whole catalog take your fingers from my hair is just this is to me this is their epic song i think this is the longest song they have on on record that they've recorded this is another late 70s song this has a lot of their influences on it it could be anything from zeppelin to rush you might hear in this but it's zebra that's playing you hear them and this is the one that just builds up and it's Again, the relationship lyrics, you know, we've mm-hmm. talked about. But it's really hard to describe this song unless you sit back, put your headphones on and listen to it just to hear everything. The way it kind of ebbs and flows, it, it goes from these low points and builds up to these heavy driven parts by the whole band. Then it comes back down again. And it's kind of like the relationship ebb and flow cycle kind of thing that we've been talking about unreal guitar work at the end and they have this big build up at the end and it just keeps going and going and he gets faster and faster in his playing but as this is all happening starting to slowly fade out and you're like no 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 keep going (laughs) you know it's we we talked on the metalheads podcast about the dio 
Holy Diver Barisi mix and how he let everything go to the end, to the very end. And right. I actually kind of dug that. So I was like, so that's how that song ends. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, and I kind of wish you got a little bit of that from this song. But to me, this is their crown jewel. I just, there's nothing more I could say about it other than you really have to sit down and just give it the full seven and a half minutes that or whatever it is and just let it just flow through and just give it all its time and let it breathe because it is a big monster song it's a proto prog metal song it really is and i yeah. could see why dream theater covered this song eventually on on one of their albums they put out a yeah on one of their eight disc versions of an album <laughs> the deluxe edition the super super and, uh, deluxe uh, uh, and they were very faithful to the original pretty much. yes and to show you as skilled as they are as musicians that was four guys playing that song. That's right. There's only three guys playing this song. There's something <laughs> about power trios. Yeah, that I agree. Other bands can't replicate with more people. I don't know what it is. The joke is, you know, whenever you listen to a Rush song, you're like, that's three guys playing that? It sounds like five. That's what this song is here. Yeah. So I won't say any more because I'll go on and on. I just absolutely love all the work on this from all of them, I thought, on this song. So. I felt like the beginning made me think of Simon and Garfunkel go 80s rock. <laughs> sort of a little like Sound of Silence, but a little more 80s. And yeah, this is a pretty long song. I, I, it was, it's the longest song on the album and, you know, probably a little long to be a, a single. So, And, you know, when I saw the song title, I did not think I was really going to like this. I was like, that oh, sounds like a dumb title. <laughs> but yeah, it's not bad. It's, it's pretty epic. And uh, yeah, the whole prog rock thing, I get that. Yeah, and another 12-string intro, right? Like, here's another epic tune where t 12 strings rule the day, and, you know... 12 strings like, to rule them all. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, John, the, the ending jam really rips. Like, that's just like, okay... You know, you sat through the seven minutes of this. Now we're, here's the payoff, guys. Right. Boom, here it is. And yeah, what a killer ending to this song. I mean, it's just awesome. And it's all of them. They're all at high peak on this. It's not just him soloing on his guitar. Right. Everyone is just soaring on yeah. this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tremendous. I, I Yeah, I love it. All right, moving on. Two more songs. Number eight, Don't Walk Away. This is reminds me of a lot like when you get there. It's got that kind of feel. This is a jangly kind of AOR track. I'll be honest with you, if you switched out the musicians and had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers play this song, you might think it's them. Ooh. Because it has that kind of Tom Petty-ish type of jangle, kind of, home, what do they call that? Not homegrown, but there's a um, Heartland, Heartland, kind of a Heartland rock feel to it, while still being kind of AOR-ish. And it's not necessarily hard rock, it's a rock tune. It's got a nice little feel to it. It's kind of the in-between song between their two proggy songs on the album that kind of they squeeze in there to fit in. And it's not more and more for me to say about it. It's, it's, I didn't think I was going to care for it again because it's been so long since I had listened to the album. I mean, I listened to it periodically, but I hadn't listened to it extensively like the last couple of weeks. And at the end, I was like, yeah, okay. I like this song just like all the other tunes. It's cool. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I... I wrote down that I, I felt like this should have been a single. I thought it was good enough for that. And I really liked the riff. Yeah, I felt like this was a song where the music was better than the lyrics. 
I kind of like, you know, I don't know. It was lyrically the, the weakest song on this album. I felt the solo was tremendous yet again. Like the, so that like, as I listened to each of these, the solo to me was notable and, and I felt like, yeah, he, he pretty much killed it. But yeah, in this case, I felt like the, the music, cause I, I felt like the, the lyrics kind of brought this song down and, and it's unfortunate because I felt the music was really good, but the lyrics kind of, I don't know, kind of, kind of brought it down for me. Definitely a little bit different from the other songs we've heard on the album. I think thematically, at least the way they structured the song, that some of the stuff they did, but all right. Final song it's called, and I'll even say this, but I heard this the first time I was like the La La song. What? Yeah. This is one of their seventies songs. And if you go back and listen to the early versions, it's, you can hear what they're doing. This is another kind of their proggy stuff, you know, their proggy hard rock. And I think it's also one of their songs they try to, we're probably thinking we can get people to sing along to this live and still be proggy. Who would ever thunk that? Who came up with this idea? (laughs) Whose weed was that we were smoking last night? (laughs) But I got to tell you, I love this song. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, here we go again with the la la. <laughs> after after a while, though, when you listen to the song a number of times, it's it almost identifies with the song as, oh, it's the la la song. <laughs> and they do some really cool kind of proggy things in this. It, the synth is probably the most prevalent in this song and how it dominates the sound of the song in itself and the way they play until you get to that kind of three something part of the song three half minute four minute and then the little kind of chugga lug with the guitar comes in and they do this kind of cool ending which is reminiscent a little bit of take your fingers from my hair where it gets a little proggy and they do a little kind of jamming at the end of it and it kind of does a little bit of a an about face but they still don't forget to sing la 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 at the end, it's just now kind of done like it's in it's ethereal. It's in the clouds. It's in the heavens while they're singing it. But the band's kind of just jamming away to the end. And it kind of is their way to end the album. They kind of close the album out on their own terms as opposed to just slapping a song at the end. So I, it's, it's a cool tune. I saw them play this live. And I remember it being cool. I was just was turned off by the, the title of the song. But every time I listened to it, I'm like, yeah, this song cool. is cool. I don't care about the title. Sometimes titles are dumb and that's okay. As long as the song is cool. This is one of those songs for me. Yeah. When I saw this, I was like the La La song. Nah, nah, this isn't, this isn't going to be for me. And they weren't kidding about the La La. There's a whole lot of (laughs) La La at the beginning of this song. That's right. And I was starting to think, I was like, are the only words in this La La? (laughs) <laughs> okay because because oh, no. i was like that would be the ballsiest thing is to it's almost like the, the rush blah 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 it's just a whole song of la 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 yeah yeah and yeah i i, I like this more than i thought i would <laughs> so mm-hmm. i agree with that yeah i felt like it was a real yes vibe in the intro mm-hmm. like yeah. that that's what came through to me yes like and the funny thing is, is like, you know, he sings so high most of the time, but yet there was no high part on the laws so much. No, it was like, all in the verse. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what's funny is, is like, as I thought about it, I was like, I could hear John Anderson singing over this, you know, <laughs> like I, I just I felt like it was very yes. And I like the way it slows down during the solo. Because it makes that section so epic. And then they had these dual harmonies 
And I definitely felt like this was the most progressive song on the album. And that ending section in five, four time, it's like, how much more progressive can you get than putting something in five? Right. Uh And, and, and that's, that's, that was what I I definitely thought that was cool. This, what was that joke, TR? We what you and I heard? What's it? It's in like twelve seven. Who yeah. does that? <laughs> right. And so now this is another song that I, I so in my notes here I wrote an, another song where the music is better than the lyrics. I honestly don't really remember the lyrics to this song. It's um, la, but, la 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 yeah. la. <laughs> Thank you, George. <laughs> but but you know again musically this thing was epic the lyrics didn't always kind of, you know, get that across or like, you know, if, if this could have been, you take the lyrics away and it, it's, it, I think it becomes even more epic that again, you know, I've, I've, I've talked about in in this podcast, you know, how much I like instrumental bands because lyrics are not that important to me usually. And, and I feel as though certain songs when left instrumental, uh, end up being way more epic than they could ever be with lyrics. Sure. And, and, I you agree. know, we're going to sometime at some point in the future, we are going to cover a Satriani album. And I, I can tell you that his songs, if, if he had put lyrics on all his songs, they would not be nearly as epic as they are. And so we'll get to that one day. Are but- you not a big fan of big bad moon? Dude, that would be one of his five best songs. It is it a great song. If it didn't have lyrics. Or if vocals. it didn't have lyrics. <laughs> it is one right. of his meanest solos in it his is. whole career. He rips on that song. And so and so the point I'm making is is that, you know, you take the lyrics and and some of the vocals off of a couple of the tracks on this album and it becomes even more epic. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like this was they were trying to create something with that, that vocal. And it, it just, there's a whole, I would love to hear what they were thinking about when they wrote the song, what, what they were trying to get to, or what was influencing them, because it just mm-hmm. has a different feel from the other songs on the album. Yeah. Well, that's true. It really, and it's, it, it's, it, well, it, it, I think because it's, it, it's even more progressive than these, these other, and it, it's like I said, it's more yes than, like Zeppelin or Rush, right? Oh, like it's yeah. it, it that that's I think I think that's probably part of it. But again, they they bring in these dual harmonies on the guitars and stuff that that you know you don't think of with with yes, right? Like that that so it's they definitely put their own thing on this and like you said John, you know, while you can say that they're like, you know, influenced by zeppelin or whatever it's zebra that's playing this music and and you can you can hear that right like they've got their own sound and while they may have been influenced by these bands ultimately it's zebra and you can hear that throughout yeah and i'll finish with one last thing about the zeppelin connection when people say i sound too much like zeppelin well that's not really strange considering that they formed in 1975 you know, and uh-huh. Zeppelin had just disbanded three years prior to this album being finally released. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like all the bands that sounded like Van Halen in the 80s and all the carbon copy bands that sounded like Metallica afterwards and all the bands that sound like Dream Theater afterwards because those bands influenced yeah. so many others. So I'll just, fin- I didn't realize we talked so long about this album. I'll just <laughs> finish by saying 
I absolutely, I think this is one of my, my favorite debut albums ever, but it, this is a really important band to me because this is one of the bands I really just gravitated to hard. And I was with them at the beginning and I kind of lost them for years. And, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, I've gotten back into them. That's, that's 15, 20 years. Yeah, but they came out in 83, <laughs> you know, so, and I just replaced all my albums with the remasters and they sound so much better. So if you're looking to try something from the early mid eighties, that was really big when it came out. And unfortunately they, they didn't make it past 90 with uh, Atlantic records. Then this is a great place to start. It's a very underrated, a somewhat unappreciated band because I don't think people realize how talented they were and still are for this matter. They're still playing. Yeah. Okay. So my pick takes us from the eighties back to the late 1960s. This is The Doors and Strange Days. This is their second album. It was released on September 25th, 1967. It reached number three on the Billboard chart and eventually went platinum. There are two hit singles from the album, but I think there's some cool deep tracks as well, which is pretty much everything else. It was recorded between tour breaks for the first album. The first album was actually released in January of 67, so like you know, they released the album and within the next eight months they toured and also recorded this album. They recorded using something that was a cutting edge eight track machine. Okay. <laughs> in in 2023, that's pretty laughable. Even that's I gr- even even I started out with a four track machine, you know, in my basement. So I was going to say it's a black, that's a single black metal or a single guy, black metal band in his basement. Yeah. <laughs> well, like black Sabbath stuff, at least early on, that was like four track. I, I think the fir- at yeah. least the first album was oh, four yeah. track. So this is eight track. And, uh, it was in- inspired by the Sgt. Pepper album. They, the band like blew their mind. And so they wanted to try out new techniques for recording. And one of the things was like a backward keyboard. So it definitely fits into the psychedelic reputation of the late sixties. Definitely. Yeah. I really like this album a lot and I have for a very long time. Well, that's good to know. So I'm coming from a little different direction. <laughs> the non doors fan. Yeah. So, so I just want to start by saying I, I, I got a lot of baggage with the doors, you know, so I, I did the growing, doorknob get you on, on the know, way out? I might have, yeah, I think so. But <laughs> basically, you know, growing up in an age of just say no, this, <laughs> this band exemplified the drug culture of the '60s to me, right? Really? I see. I don't. I mean, I don't get it. It was, only, it was only Jim Morrison for me. The rest of well, them never did. Well, even well, no, because I mean, musically, I felt like it was it was pretty trippy. Like you listen to this album, well, yeah, it's definitely psychedelic sounding. But. Yeah, exactly, and 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 a lot of the the keyboard sounds and everything. It was trippy, psychedelic. You know, Morrison reportedly died from a drug overdose. You know, they had a lot of spoken word in their songs. Morrison's low crooning kind of didn't do a lot for me. But I will say this: over time. I have warmed up to this band somewhat. Yay. I was going to say, so, if, you, if you didn't like the drug culture for them, you must hate Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I've always liked Pink Floyd, and <laughs> and that's because they, you know, well, okay, so early Pink Floyd was definitely psychedelic, right? Right. Like the that's early what stuff. That's early, what yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I have to admit, like, you know, I've never really been big on the Sid Barrett days. Yeah. Floyd, but, but, but this, this, so 
you know, I know I have a love hate relationship with the rock and roll hall of fame, but I, when I went there, I saw a number of displays that gave some background on Jim Morrison. Cause I, I never really knew much about him. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, you know, they had some of his like grade school papers and handwritten stuff that he had done. And, you know, I was surprised to learn, you know, when you, when you, when all you know of this guy is, you know, he's, he's indecent exposure on whatever tour that was that they claim he never really showed anything. And then all the drugs and the, all the other stuff and the outrageous stuff. And you find out like he was the son of a, of a Navy rear Admiral. Mm -hmm. He had really good grades in school and, you know, he was like really smart, read an enormous amount. And, and I, I was very surprised by all that because I, it didn't, I didn't, his persona and everything else about him kind of belied that whole background, which is, is unfortunate. And I feel like, you know, say what you will. I, I don't know. I feel like drugs and alcohol really took a toll on him. And it's really unfortunate what that did to him, because I feel like had he gotten through that and, and, you know, we've seen it with other bands and other, other artists that kind of make it through and they kind of gain some maturity and some wisdom and then they, you know, they have like a second chapter and I feel it's really sad that this guy didn't get that chance. And so I, I, you know, I definitely have warmed to this, but I, I, coming into it like early on, like when I was a teenager, like I did not like the doors. I felt like this is like everything about drugs and everything that's bad. And this is like, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I was a goody two shoes. I got to tell you, like when I was growing up, forget it. Right. Yeah, you are. Yeah, oh, I, I loved the Doors. I, I was a fan in high school, and I knew a lot of this stuff because I read the book "No One Here Gets Out Alive," Me which too. is one of the coolest. First of all, it was a cool cover. It, it was an attention catcher. The uh-huh. colors, the yellow and red on the cover, yeah, and him just standing there looking all like Val Kilmer. <laughs> Wait a minute! Oh, hold that's kind of strange. Wait a minute! Val Kilmer kind of looks like him. You just put the <laughs> cart before the horse. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, and you read the book and you learn all this stuff about him. And so I I knew that I I was a big fan. I I didn't get the hate from some people, not what you're saying, TR. There's some people who it's just like vitriol. I mean, they just want to kill the band members. Like, okay, if you don't like them, that's cool. Right. If you don't like that kind of carnival sounding keyboard, Uh you know, or or the work that he uses, I get that too. And don't worry. There's a lot of songs by them. I don't like either. And I still mm-hmm. like them. So, yeah. Uh, but I'm glad George that you picked this album because I think this album sort of gets overshadowed by the debut, uh-huh. but I think it's just as good, if not better than the debut. And that's saying something because the debut is pretty damn good. It is. But I like the vibe on this album better though, personally. So yes, yeah. we'll, we'll leave it there. All right. So let's get into the first track, which is the title track, Strange Days. So this one was definitely hitting the trippy psychedelic thing pretty hard right out the gate. But but overall, a decent song. Gets the head bobbing. I like Ray Manzarek's signature keyboards. They kind of give their, their own like weird sound. I mean, 
I think their signature, maybe their carnival. But the- well, I'm thinking of light, light my fire, and hello, I love you. I kind of listen to those songs. And I'm like, ah, it's kind of killing me. But then on other songs, I think his sound is amazing, and it does great wonders for songs. Yeah. This is one of those songs where it does. Yeah, I think. Yeah, there's plenty of keyboards and music at this time, but I felt like these were more like rock keyboards than some kind of, I don't know, like electric piano kind of thing, you know. He wasn't playing it like a piano like keyboard players would. He was playing riffs on that that thing. So anyway. Well, he was was doing the bass parts because they didn't have a bass player early on. Exactly. So, yeah, Mike, I was just going to say to me, like on on you know on the zebra albums i said the music was better than the lyrics in some of the songs and in this case i felt the lyrics were better than the music <laughs> on this song i felt like no doubt, as as i started looking at the lyrics so uh, again i looked at the lyrics for each of these songs and it's clear you know morrison is definitely a, a very good lyrics writer or poet or whatever you want to call them. And in this case, I felt like the lyrics were better than the music. Yeah. He definitely was, you know, the, the center of this band, you know, I mean, the music's cool and stuff, but without his, his, you know, personality and, and, and charisma, they would have been nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think some of his lyrics get a little out there. Um, especially when you well that's almost an understatement come on no because i mean songs like crystal ship and moonlight drive are are pretty beautifully written lyrics but he gets to some of his stuff where in the later period albums i'm just starting to wonder you know how how trashed were you when you were writing these lyrics because Mm. when he puts thought into his lyrics he comes up with some really ebb and flow type lyrics that work really well together I actually dig that. I think this is a cool intro song because it's not a typical door song. And that's what I thought I liked about it is more than there's no signature sound to it, which was different for them. It it, ha- it just kind of reminds me of some where they were still had the keyboards, but in the later albums, they became more rock albums as opposed to psychedelic albums. And I kind of like this song that I could see this song being played in the later period and it would sound more like this than if you pulled light my fire out and took a lot of the other keyboard Raymond's Eric parts out, it just wouldn't sound the same, uh-huh. obviously, because that song is built on that. So this song has a lot that's built on besides Raymond's Eric, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Even though it's really psychedelic and, and, and dark. The other thing too, real quick, I, I'll say about this album that you notice right off the bat, there is bass on this album. Based on every song, they actually have a bass player that they were gonna they asked to join the band, but he chose not to. On the first album, they have bass, but the guy playing bass on a few of the songs is just mimicking Raymond Zarek's bass parts that he plays on uh-huh. his keys. This guy's actually playing full on bass, his own parts. So and he chose not to be part of the doors. He chose to stick with his other band at the time. Oh. Yeah. Whoops. Hmm. Well, a few other, he had, there was a few other reasons. I mean, who knows? It could have been, he just didn't want want to play with the guys or something like that, but he ended up playing on a lot of their albums after that, as far as I can tell. So cool. So the second track is your lost little girl. That's not as trippy as strange days. It's kind of chill, ethereal intro, and it builds up as the song progresses. 
I felt like Morrison's vocals on this one are both simple in their, you know, spoken word way, but also mesmerizing in his like soft lulling you kind of, what do you call those? Weaving people? a web of uh, yeah. intrigue or whatever, <laughs> mystery. Mystery. Yes. Uh, I felt like he kind of had a sound all his own. I mean, you hear Jim Morrison, you know Jim Morrison, unless, of course, it's one of the many people that try to sound like Jim Morrison. But mm-hmm. simple as his style was, it, it was me- notable and memorable. On um, This song made me think about the fact that there are kind of a bunch of different archetypes for 60s bands. You know, you've got the Beatles, they were one, and the Stones are another. You know, people would fall in line between one of those. The Who... The Grateful Dead, of course, have spawned a million fish clones. And then I was thinking The Doors. But you know who The Doors take after quite a bit? Any thoughts? Who could be the archetype for The Doors in 60s rock bands? Who? The Animals! (laughs) Mm, (laughs) The Doors sort of cleaned up and perfected the sound of The Animals. I mean, Mm -hmm. while I was listening to The Doors, I was thinking about this, and that just, you know, I could hear like Eric Burden and the animals like doing, you know, we got to get out of this place or yeah st- something. And I was just like, huh? Well, actually that's not, that song isn't a great example of it. Cause that's a little oh, it's, different, but, but a lot of the Eric Burden t- stuff, you know, oh, misunderstood yeah, actually, or a good point. Yeah. You know, it's my life and I'll do what I want. That's very Jim Morrison. When yeah. You think about it. Yeah. And, and, and the, even the, like the, the, the keyboards, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 everything about the doors is the animals. Yeah. So I never, yeah, I, I could, that, I could, that's a yeah, good quote. I can see, I can that. see that. that yeah. I like that, George. Yeah. Go out and listen to the animals. Oh, I like the animals. Yeah. 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 yeah this is, I always felt like this song was out of place in the second spot because it you have this kind of weird, trippy, dark song to start it out. And then you kind of go into this kind of, yeah, you know, yeah hey. Spa music. You yeah. know, and it, it almost... <laughs> and it, it, relax. Yeah, and then it builds into kind of the 60s thematic type song a little bit, you know, like... I'm not going to say it's like a soundtrack to like a James Bond film, but you know, it, it comes in with the drum beat, you know, yeah. dun, dun, dun. you know, it kind yeah. of has that feel. And then it's just, like dual meaning. You know what to do. Right. And then it's You're like, a, girl. we're going to find out there's a song about a guy trying to turn a girl into a prostitute or something, you know, with these double lyrics, but I like it. It just like, little, should yeah. have been a third song, but <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I actually liked it myself. I like the air of mystery that, that it's shrouded in. It wasn't too trippy. Like you said, George, it's it's not super psychedelic or super trippy. So it, it's a little more mainstream, normal. Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of I kind of liked it. Next, we have Love Me Two Times. This was the second single off the album. And uh, to me... It kind of brings back the bluesy feel of the first album a little mm-hmm. bit. It's another it's another Krieger song, Robbie Krieger. Mm-hmm. While I said this is the second single off the album, it's kind of reminiscent musically of the first single off the album, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's the second single and probably my second favorite song from the album. It's a cool tune. I love the bluesy vibe to it. I've always loved this song. And I kind of like the fact that there's an individual bass that's not following the keys on it. It's, it just kind of 
changes the pace of the album. Three songs in a row, all different paced songs, which mm. you're going to see it can continue. Every song is slightly paced differently than the last one, even though it's a really psychedelic album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I felt like this was one of the more the, the one of the catchier songs on this album, and it's you know saucy. Yeah, you um, could hear this in like in a in a jukebox in a bar or something in yeah. the south. You know, definitely, it's just like got that saucy kind of you know. Oh, it was a, and it was a big hit for them too. I mean, it's got yeah. tons of tons of play. You still hear it all the time right. on classic. Oh yeah, for sure. You know so. So the next song is called Unhappy Girl. And this seemed like more of a kid. What are you laughing at? It's just funny because John's like, I think his, and and you, you know, the way you're starting off with the way you're talking about this. I just go, go ahead, George. I want to hear what you want to what you're going to say. I apologize. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's more of a keyboard driven song. I like most of the songs on this album. And this one is no exception. However, it's definitely middle of the pack for the release. Hmm. You know, not not really one of my favorites. But maybe a little lower for me. <laughs> I'm my trying notes, to be nice here. Yeah, in my yeah. notes, I said seems like a bit of fluff. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I see. And the other thing is, is so the interesting thing about this is, you know, I looked at the lyrics, and there's no real chorus to this. Like the verses almost seem like choruses. There's there's no difference in any of the verses. Like there's no there's no bridge and there's no chorus and there's no lyrics, right? It's like just there. No, it's yeah, exactly. It's like just okay, there. we're gonna give you this and we're gonna give you this and we're gonna give you this. That's and it. It's all the same kind of thing. And there's no kind of hook or thing where it's like, okay, here's the chorus, here's the payoff, right? It it doesn't really do that. And yeah. so I was just kind of I don't know. I was just structurally as a song. They might've forgotten some parts. Maybe so. It's very short. Yeah. It's only two minutes long. I think that's probably why. I mean, it just doesn't like, you know, maybe two drafts more, they would have had a chorus or a hook that would have been like, Oh yeah, here's the, here's the reason for this song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For, for me, it's my least favorite song on the album. Now I'm saying this. Stop. It's not my least favorite track on the album. It's oh, my thank least you, favorite song. Because I know where you're going with that. Yeah. We'll just leave. We'll, this yeah. will come up again. But it will. Like on the next song. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next we have Horse Latitudes. And this one isn't really a song. It's more of a poetic interlude. This is the part of the doors that TR did not like early on. <laughs> This well, would be a prime example. Of that. This is this is, but this is artsy fartsy. This isn't. Oh yeah, I wouldn't this, say this, this is a drug thing. It's a, this provided uh, com- oh. this, this provided all the levity for me because yeah. here's here, you want to hear my notes on this. Yeah, Note, com- completely unnecessary and semi pretentious. <laughs> oh, <laughs> definitely over dramatic. I'm reminded of William Shatner's Transformed Man. And I don't know if you guys have ever listened yes. to William Shatner's Transformed yes. Man, but this is that in spades. It's just so, so, so bad. Over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me add to that, TR. I wrote Jim Morrison speaking nonsense over a chaotic psychedelic noise. Kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah. I said it's cool for what it is, but generally I just skip this one. Yeah. yeah. You don't need to listen to this song. 
I mean, if you went from Love Me Two Times to Moonlight Drive, they ain't missing much. Yeah. Just my opinion. People might like this stuff. Yeah. I want to everybody. It provided levity to me. I mean, you know, I, again, I was, you know, I was thinking of Shatner once more into the breach, you know, yeah, <laughs> the exactly. stuff off of that album. Yeah. So uh, this is the part of Jim Morrison that annoyed me, mm-hmm. you know, but hey, it's only a minute and a half. So it's not that right. much time out of your life. Yeah. <laughs> you won't get it back, but still. No. <laughs> Sorry. So next we have Moonlight Drive, which John just mentioned. And I feel like the star of this song and many Doors songs is Morrison's lyrics. Musically, the song almost has like a, a drunken lilt to it. <laughs> like he's kind of stumbling down that moonlit drive. But, you know, the lyrics are what keep me hanging around. You know, music's fine for what it is, but I think the lyrics are really cool on this one. Oh, this is some of his best written lyrics, I think. Just they're real catchy. I think I was reading how Robbie Krieger was kind of hooked by the lyrics, or maybe it was Raymond's lyric, but one of the two, or maybe both, were saying that they were like, wow, this is really good stuff. This is one of my favorite Doors tracks from their whole catalog. I love the kind of slide guitar, the the sleepwalk sound a little bit. You know, if you know the song Sleepwalk Mm. from uh, Santo and Johnny. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone's heard it, but he's playing that on a uh, steel guitar. But it sort of sounds like that a little bit. And I kind of dig it and I like how it builds up. And he has a really cool kind of explosion and vocals towards the end of the song. And then it just kind of fades out real nice. I love this song. This is easily one of my five favorite door songs easily. So I liked it too, although I felt like the solo was the best part of this song. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I didn't get as hooked as on the lyrics as you guys did. Oh, I think Robbie. This is one of Robbie Krieger's better songs. I think. Yeah, but 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 the thing was is like, and I agree that the the slide's kind of cool, but like he kind of overdoes it. Like I felt like the slide was a little gimmicky because it, you know, he kept kind of going back to that same sound, and I just, I don't know, it it didn't work as much for me. I I, I understand, like I get what you're saying. Maybe I just need to give it more of a chance, but like I felt like it was a little gimmicky. I did like the solo, and I definitely kind of like the vibe of the tune for sure. Now this is one of their older songs too. This was written before the first album, so I think it was written in '65. So that kind of sound says where they were with some of the because you think about it, that wasn't on the first album. If you put that on the first album, it's like holy shit. I mean. What do you take off that album then? I mean, there's a couple yeah, tracks. Right. You, there's a couple on the second side you could probably take off, but it's another band that has tons of material that they save for their second and third albums. So, mm-hmm. so the next song is "People Are Strange." I'm sure I heard this song previously, but I remember really getting into this song during the movie "The Lost Boys" <laughs> in the '80s. And, uh, you know, at that point I was in high school and I kind of really connected with the lyrics to this song because I'm weird, I'm strange. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it, it's definitely my all-time favorite Doors song, I think. I can't think of anything else that I like more than this one. It's kind of dark and it has like a like a saloon music feel to it. So it always makes me think of like New Orleans or something. And it just feels kind of dangerous <laughs> with that, you know. It's like people are strange and coming out of the mist and you know (laughs) this weird chaotic music and the lyrics you know you really i at least really connect with feeling like an outsider 
and thinking that people are strange or people thinking that I'm strange. I rarely listen to this song just once. This is one of those songs where you, <laughs> if you have that ability, you rewind it and listen to it again. Cause it's, I mean, it, it's pretty short too. It's only like two and a half minutes or something, <laughs> but I end up replaying it and listening to it more than once usually. Yeah. I, I felt like this was definitely, if not the strongest tune, one of the strongest tunes on this album. And I agree, George, like the, the, the term saloon music is very apropos because like the keyboard, the piano or keyboard sound of this mm-hmm. almost is, is like, like an out of tune saloon piano. And that does add to the dangerous quality of it. Yes. <laughs> so I would agree like that. I, yeah, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. And, and I definitely agree with you on pretty much everything you said about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This, this is one of the songs I think where the lyrics match the music, uh-huh. meaning when he's singing at the beginning of the song and it's just got a kind of slow prod before where even his air comes in, you kind of feel like, man, there's some freaking weird people around here right now. <laughs> you, know, you almost feel like you're, you're walking and this song is playing in your soundtrack of your mind. And you guys mentioned saloon. See, I get the whole cabaret feel, which is no not much different. It's just, you know, Same a fancy idea. French, it's a French yeah. fancy saloon, basically. Right. But it does. It has that cabaret saloon feel. Uh, I wouldn't say carnival, but you almost kind of feel like it when it starts building up and he's really heavily yeah. playing Raymond Zarek. You kind of feel like mm-hmm. maybe you're in a drunken state at a, at a carnival. And you're almost. like, I got to get off this ride. Yeah, because there's all these weird things. If you've ever been to, I mean, I, I like carnivals better than fairs because there's always weird things going on at carnivals. There's, you know, carnies, that's the whole draw, <laughs> the weirdness, the strangeness, the oddness, you know, and I think that's what makes this song so catchy and probably why it's one of their, if it's not off their first album, you know, it's the post first album greats that they, they put out. Okay, then next we have My Eyes Have Seen You. Said so this is a very 60s sounding intro, but at this point in the album, I feel like it it's a little repetitive. And just it's, I'm like, yes, okay, I've heard this like a couple times now, and I'm starting to reach my threshold on that. And I, I think this one kind of hangs out in the middle of the pack with your lost little girl. They're mm-hmm. both kind of like you know, nah, 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 nah. anyway, uh, I, I, I saw it as kind of straightforward for them on this album. You know, it didn't, nothing really struck me about the, it's, it's a the, cool little tune. You know, the, the funny thing is I really like this song. <laughs> I, I felt like this had a really cool groove and I really like this song. Like I like this song better than a lot of the other songs on the album. So I, I thought the keyboard and guitar riffs were pretty cool. Yeah. Like I felt like this had a really cool groove. Like it just, I don't know. I I liked it a lot, which I think is funny because you guys are kind of like, eh. but I, I no, I I like it. It's yeah. it's but it's but it's like the second tier. You've got like people are strange, and uh, I mean I I like this. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I like it too. Just, I mean, I like it better than a lot of the other stuff on this album. Okay. I, I like it better than Strange Days. I like it better. You know, like I I actually really like this song. Like almost as good as like love me two times and people are strange like that like like i i put i put it like right under them pretty much yeah which is kind of funny because you guys i don't think like i don't think you guys put it at that level 
Look, we're not saying it's horse latitudes, TR. Yeah. Okay. Come on. Okay. All right. All right. Let it go. Yeah. All right. I think so. All right. So, you know, one thing about this song I noticed was like towards the end of the song, Morrison's vocals get kind of heavy. Mm. You know, I mean, because he's just like, rah, rah, you know, he's yelling it out there. And it kind of made me wonder like where he would have ended up in the later in the 70s or even early 80s if he'd like lived. Would he have gotten heavy? Would he have like doubled down on the soft parade? Well, <laughs> you know, that's a good question because a lot of these 27 club, you know, people that passed away like Hendrix and, and you know, it, you kind of wonder like, what would have become of these people? Like what, you know, would Hendrix have gone through like a disco period, you know, like, <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know. And, and, no way. and no way. He was Maybe. hitting jazz all the way. Fusion well, jazz. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. And, 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 and so same kind of thing for, for Morrison, right? Like what would it, it's, it's beguiling to think about what some of these people would have done had they lived and you know what what their futures would have held it's 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 really unfortunate that we you know that we lost these these artists because i kind of wonder you know had he gotten through all that and 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 you know gotten past the drugs and everything you know what 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 kind of artist would he have turned into or you know how would he have grown and it's it's really unfortunate that that so many of these artists that that had that you know had obviously lived up to a great deal of their potential but not fully realized their potential you know were were you know taken down at, at too young an age so it's it's a shame i i really feel like i i i think we all probably would have gotten it would have been interesting to see what would have happened to to him and what, what yeah. you know what kind of music he would have made and and what he would have done you know who knows would he have stayed in music maybe he would have become an actor would it maybe he would have written books you know who knows what he would have done but it's it's just it's a shame to think like you know here was a really bright person that as an artist you know had a lot to say and a lot to do and just you know, life cut short. It's it's a, it's a shame. You're assuming he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot. He's with Elvis on an island. No, right? no, oh, no. Oh. He talked oh. about this, Mister Mojo Rising. Yeah. Uh, you yes. know, you're you know, remember he, Mister Mojo from mm -hmm. Africa. So that was, you know, if there was ever a person that was gonna like show up and say, "Hey, I'm 97. I'm still alive." It would be him because he used to tell <laughs> people. I, from what I remember. Yeah. You know, he used to say that. So, and then he mysteriously joins the 27 Club, which, well, yeah. th this is where it, you have to, you know, kind of assert the importance of making sure that what you're snorting is cocaine and not heroin. Yeah. Because uh, that'll kill you. Boy, I just think that, that, was, that was their problem. Not that then. I know the difference. <laughs> I just read the book. Yeah. All right. All right. So, Second to last song, I Can't See Your Face in My Mind. That just does not roll off the tongue, okay? Yeah. Could have just come out and say this is my least favorite song on the album. <laughs> it's not a terrible song, but it, I didn't feel it was all that special either, so. Yeah, I, I didn't really care. Wrote, yeah, I wrote, the lyrics don't seem to mean anything. <laughs> wow. I, I, I just, I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't interpret what it was about, and then, uh, the other thing I wrote was trippy guitar lines, 
which I guess, you know, it was pretty trippy in terms of the guitar stuff, but mm-hmm. that's about all I, I... This is so funny because I actually like this song. <laughs> I want to stop you, TR, on the lyrics part with the doors. Okay. Yeah, well... Don't, well, no, yeah. I was going to say... You can't assign meaning to some of this stuff, right? Don't even try sometimes because sometimes he just wrote gibberish because yeah. it really... It, he's not John Anderson gibberish. Well, right, and that's where I was going to go next, right? Like He has a plan with what he's doing. Yeah, and 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 John Anderson just got high play, and just well, yeah. didn't play. It's all <laughs> yeah, did. exactly right. It's like, how does this sound with this word right. against that word? And they don't mean anything together, yeah. but they sound the top cool of the teeth, you top of the tongue. Yes, exactly. But there was a method to his madness and his mm-hmm. lyrics, but I actually kind of liked how mm-hmm. it's like Moonlight Drive meets Waiting for the Sun off a of Morrison Hotel. It's got that kind of just strange psychedelic Rayman Zarek part in the beginning i love the marimba i'm a drummer i'm a I oh a little, yeah a that's right and there's some marimba on there i so forgot about that yeah that that part i kinda, really liked this kind of latin kind of loungy feel island feel you know if you don't know what a marimba is it's like a xylophone it's like a glockenspiel glockenspiel <laughs> it's you know it's it's wooden bars played with mallets and yeah. they have notes you know it's just not Banging on drums, you know, percussionists actually have to know notes and scales and everything. What? It just kind of gives it a nice little feel. So that's probably why I like this song is because I kind of dig the the Latin kind of island loungy feel with the marimba. So, but I could see where you might be like, eh, eh, yeah. All right. So the last track on the album, When the Music's Over. On their first album, they had the epic track, The End. And on Strange Days, they end with another epic when the music's over. Clocking in at almost 11 minutes. Clearly, this song never had any aspirations of being a hit song, being so long as it is. Yet, it's a pretty cool song. A little long, yeah. Chorus is actually pretty catchy. And even when he's not singing, it's just kind of an interesting track. As long as it is, I was okay with, like, hearing it all, you know, just to get to the end. And, uh... It's, well, it's, it's divided into five parts, so it kind of has its own strange flow, even though it's strange kind of a strange flow. Song. You know, when you think about it, I love this song. And yeah, I th- it, you mentioned the end, not to cut you off. I'm sorry. You mentioned the end. If there was ever two songs that kind of describe this time, this era, any of the turmoil people, you know, may have felt or had, it's those two songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the beginning of Apocalypse Now, when they're playing the end with Martin Sheen hammered in his hotel room uh-huh. and he cuts his hand. I mean, it, the song fits the the chaos of the movie. Right. This song kind of has that same feel. And it's one of his greatest screams ever when he, he screams now, when he says, we want the world and we want it now. Yeah. I always dug this song. It is long, but I was, going to... I always wondered if the Ramones got took that like we want the world and we want it now because they have a song called we we want the airwaves right mm-hmm. and there's the lyric we want the world and we want it now and it's like it would, hmm, you know it would be kind of funny if they did because they would be the complete antithesis of the doors <laughs> yeah, exactly well, yeah, but <laughs> they know? did a cover of take it as it comes and they never thought they were a punk band they always just thought they were kind of an aggressive rock band when they first started which is kind of interesting so yeah 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 i yeah. Like you, George, I like to listen to the end just because there's so much going on and it's kind of this weird jammy middle section and then he just starts doing his 
Jim Morrison thing. And <laughs> when the which, music's over, turn out the have, lights, turn out the it, lights. You know, it's it, it's very yeah. it's very. A, it has a groove. It really does, even though it's got these interludes and ebbs and flows. So, you know, to me, this this song more than any other on this album is what the doors are all about. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's well executed. It takes you on a journey and it's really the best of all the band members put together mm-hmm. and for better or worse, you know, like, you know, if it, it's, it's what it's, it is the doors to me. Like this, this is what the doors are like mm-hmm. when the music's over and I agree the end it it really exemplifies what this band is about in in a lot of ways and uh pre-prop yeah i mean it's <laughs> it's it's really this band and you know it 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 condenses all the psychedelia i mean yes it's a long song so it doesn't sound very condensed but but it it captures everything it captures his spoken word his screaming his mellow lyrics the trippy kind of sounds the psychedelic sounds it's it's all there like it, it's all of it is in this song and and in the end i mean it's it's it really kind of exemplifies every aspect of the band it captures everything of the band so i i feel like this is a a good way to end the album and and I feel like it's a it's it's a really good example of what the doors are all about, and I put it you know kind of in the top tier. Yeah, definitely of the songs of this album. I would put it top three, at the very least. Yeah. So I'm kind of pleased that you know when when I said this that we were doing this one, you were kind of like, Ugh. and but you kind of came out mostly positive yeah. today. So. I did. I actually, like I said, George, I'm warming to this album and I'm warming to this band. And I have to admit, I never heard most of the songs on this album before. Mm-hmm. So for me, this was a new exploration and you know, I kind of dug it. I mean, I didn't love all of it, but obviously like, you know, definitely enough caught of the cut through of, you know, my eyes have seen you and, I kind of liked your lost little girl. I mean, I didn't expect to like that, but as the more I thought about it, like I just like your lost Bernie, which is really kind of funny. But psychedelic I, lounge, baby. Exactly. But I like it. Yeah. I'm coming around on the on the doors, George. You're coming around the mountain. Yeah. To the doors. <laughs> so funny because I it's one of my early like sixties rock bands that I liked a lot early on. Going back twelve, thirteen years old so that's mm-hmm. kind of funny we all get into these bands at different points in our lives so yeah trs just happens to be now yes yeah. it <laughs> took a while but i got there so that's all right yeah i think you might like a lot more than you know especially if you go back and listen some of the later period stuff where the psychedelic kind of drops a little and they become a little bluesier Mm. On their sound, I, I think you might dig some. Hell, woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. That's true. And look, I. So, you know, when his voice my, gets real gravelly, I think is when they do some really cool stuff. Yeah, and and I have, I actually, I do have like some sort of, I can't remember which Doors compilation or best of thing that I have, but I I do have one of those, and I do like 
you know, most of the hits, but it was, it was interesting to kind of hear some of these other songs that, you know, have, I've never heard on the radio or that uh-huh. they would not play some of these songs for sure. So it was, it was kind of cool to get a little bit of a window into some of the other stuff. I mean, it wasn't unexpected, obviously, like definitely, you know, psychedelic or trippy or whatever you want to call it. But, but it was, I, I enjoyed kind of exploring this album a little because I had never listened to it before and I, it wasn't unexpected, but yet it, it, it definitely, I don't know, it was somewhat rewarding. So I appreciate that, George. I, I like You're welcome. that you, you know, yeah. Think, keep that in mind when I pick something you don't like. Uh, <laughs> nah, you know, I think I'll see what those like, reactions are. We're done today. <laughs> yes. So the, the third album this week is the other metal band from Birmingham. And that's Judas Priest. And this album is Sad Wings of Destiny. And this album was recorded in late 1975 and released in 1976 and is Priest's follow-up to their first album, Rockarola. And on this album, you start to hear their dual guitar attack and, and Halford's epic, nearly operatic vocals further solidifying here. And I got to say, not only did their sonic presence start to gel, but even their their album cover art started to kind of come into being here. And on this album, their album cover art is by Patrick Woodruff, and it's titled Fallen Angel, and depicts an angel sitting amongst smoke, flames, and a skull and other bones. That's metal. Down, yeah, it is, with a downcast face and clenched fists. Definitely a metal image, right? And so... So Priest is is coalescing into a metal band on this album. Their first album also had some metal sounds to it, but there were a lot more kind of 70s tinges to it that I I think like they're they're starting to find their way on this on this second album. And and so uh, you know I've read both both Rob Halford's book Confess and KK Downing's book Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest and both of their recollections of this time was they had next to no money both Rockarola and Sad Wings were made with about 2000 pounds each fronted by their label at the time Gull when they were recording this album they lived at the studio and according to Rob, had no money to go anywhere. So they were really scrounging at this time. The look of the band had not yet come together. If you've seen their performance on BBC's old gray whistle test of Dreamer, Deceiver, and Deceiver, KK is still wearing a white fedora and a Hendrix-style shirt, and Halford has long shoulder-length hair, and the rest of the band is wearing jeans, the leather and studs were still a few years off for yeah. this band at the time. So so let's get into it. This album is really one of the one of the proto metal albums and and is just one of my favorites of all time. And so it starts with a song called Victim of Changes, which really started as two songs, one called Whiskey Woman and one called Red Light Lady. 
and it's characterized by awesome riffs and the transition from the first part of the song to the second, which makes this really interesting. The way that they transition from a victim of changing. Exactly. It's, but it's not a victim at all. It's, it, (laughs) it triumphs. It triumphs in the change. The second part showcases their mellower side until it really cranks and, 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 it's got some of the highest vocals I'd ever heard pretty much at the end of this song. It, it, this, I, I gotta say, I love this album so much and, and I, I'm really going to try to keep myself from being the biggest fanboy on this, on this podcast for this song and this album, because it, it's just, it's so tremendous. I love it. And I know you guys are priest fans. So I'll leave it there. If you guys want to talk about victim of changes. Song is total garbage. <laughs> rubbish. Kidding. It's rubbish. No, just kidding. This is like the first real track of the first real priest album. Some would argue the first real metal song with actual metal riffs. You know, I know Scott Ian. I think it was at least I think it was Scott Ian was saying on on XM how for him this album that priest in general were the beginning of true actual metal. You know, Sabbath was more bluesy, doomy. Yeah. This is the first kind of like real metal. So, yeah. And and that, uh, just to interject, in 1976, when this came out, the other semi-metal albums that were coming out at this time were Rainbow Rising, which was heavy and kind of metal, but... I, I would I would argue that the, the that the songs on this album were more metal than what Rainbow was doing. Definitely, uh, uh, yeah. It, and then Dio, 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 forgive us. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> then you had the Scorpions' Virgin Killer, right? Which which was heavy, and it was hard rock. But and and you could argue that parts of that are metal. But to me, this is more metal than that. I don't think Scorpions yeah. have ever been truly metal. Yeah, They've I always would agree. Kind of been hard rock. You yeah, know? right. Yes. And then you've got Rush 2112, mm. which it, I, I wouldn't call metal, but it's certainly hard on the verge of metal. It's on it's, the cusp of greatness. It's angry like metal. And, it, you know, it was definitely their statement album that got them to where they ended up going. And it really kind of was the turning point for that band. But, but in terms of metal, the way we like think of metal from the beginning, this is more metal than all of them. Sabbath did technical ecstasy, which I would not consider. I would almost not (laughs) consider a metal album. Definitely. So, so when you think of like, and, and there were a bunch of other hard rock albums that came out in 1976, I didn't bother to list them, but, but, you know, of the most metal albums that came out in 76, to me, this is the most metal of all of those. And, and I don't know if you guys would argue that point or have I would any not. other thoughts about the other song and other yeah. things that came out in 1976. No, I totally agree. I would. Okay. You would argue? Yes. Oh, Thunderdome! Right. Get on it! I would say from front to back album, yes, yeah. I agree. Okay. However, Sabbath had a little song in 1973 called Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which was probably their, their heaviest song up to that point. 
Right. And there are moments on that album that are very metal like, even though people like uh, Sabbath now has become non metal anymore mm. because yeah. kids today think metal is what they listen to. Sabbath, you know, come on. Right. But I think Sabbath was got into technical ecstasy and it all went down right. from there. Yeah. And I would say, if you're going to mention Rush, I go all the way back to Anthem as being a metalish song. But right. if you want to say front to back album, then I will not disagree with that. Well, yeah, I was I was more focused on 1976, right? I know. Like, well, like, I know, well, but you were saying the yeah. first true metal album. Yes. I, I think there's metal out there. Right. Just maybe not front to back. More contemporary yes. metal. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I, can I, don't, for so I don't disagree with you there. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I love this album too. I'm going to get kicked off the podcast, but what I have to say next. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, you better not. Oh, I'm right. saying it. All right. Are we talking Victim of Changes or? Talking the whole album. Okay. Well, let me hear it. I just don't like the sound on the first two albums at all. I don't like the pacing on the songs. And I'm going to tell you why I don't like the pacing on the songs. And this is Victim of Changes. It's genocide and tyrant. Let me tell you why. All right. Because they put an album out in 1979 Mm -hmm. called Unleashed in the East, which is supposedly live, supposedly in the studio. Yes. And those versions of those songs are so fucking good. I'm sorry I said it. They're that good. Victim of Changes on that album is just like mind-numbing how good it is. Tyrant is so good. So when I go back and I listen to the album, I'm like, Ah, where is that supposed live slash studio version? And well, it's because yeah. it's the studio technology. I mean, literally four years, three years later, exactly. it's that much better. Well, and they, so, they'd been playing it that long too. Right. Right. But they'd have that time to hone it into. And they, you know, just, it's the seventies and, and that's, and it's not them. It's a lot of bands. I'm just yeah. like, ah, because when you go back and you listen to the, the, like the drums are buried and they didn't exactly yeah. have the best drummer in the world on the album. And then you know, he gets to, well, you know, Scott Travis has been in the band for over 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, no, but it wasn't Simon Phillips yet. And it wasn't Les no. Banks. Right. Two fabulous no. drummers to follow up. So no, it was Alan Moore and, and, and yeah, he decent. was adequate, but yeah. right. I agree. So yeah. that's my only, only knock on the album is that when I go back and listen now, like when I listen to the Ripper, I'm like, ah, it's so much better on that other album. Yeah. And so that's my only draw is it sounds 70 still okay to me because I mean, but you know, like I kind of like that though. I mean, yeah. I like, I like, I dig that seventies sound, right? Like I, 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 I totally understand what you're saying, John. And I, I agree. Like I, there's a noticeable change between this album and sin after sin. Yeah. Well, that's because the band got $60,000 right. to make sin after sin. And making. they got 2,000 pounds to make, you know, <laughs> sad wings of destiny. Yeah. So, you know, the, like the, you can hear the cost of like, of course. Yeah. And they even say, and they've said, yeah, we really consider Judas Priest really starting with sin after sin. And I think that was more just to dig at their old record label more than anything else. When they I say agree. That. Yes. But, but at the same time, there's an argument to be made that that's sort of kind of, they're directional yes they're directional because they sound more metal on that album but that's probably because the studio that's only negative thing i have to say about the album okay all right so everyone just move on all right complains about production on the metalheads podcast all the time yeah i'm allowed to have an album once in a while here too (laughs) that's true because you will hear me bitch about this on all 70s albums 
All right. Did we want to say anything more on Victim of it's, Changes? It's it's one of their five best songs. Yeah, I agree. Period. There's nothing yeah. more you can say about it. It's a standout. It's their deliverance. Every show I see Priest, I'm like, oh, they're going to play it again. And then they start and you're like, that dueling guitar intro is one of the greatest things it ever. It is. Yeah. Ever. Love it. Love it. Yes. And ever. I've, I've, I've seen them live and they've... Of the times I've seen them live, one, two, three, four, five, six times they've played Victim of Changes. Right. And you, it, so we haven't seen them as much as Opeth. So we haven't sat there and said, all right, I don't have to hear Deliverance tonight. Yeah. But after a while, like, well, can they play something different? I don't right. mind if they do. And then you hear it and you're yeah. like, no. Oh, uh, no, yeah. I, no. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it. can you play uh, it yeah. again? <laughs> Keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So the next song is The Ripper. The Ripper. And- this is done from the perspective of Jack the Ripper. Hmm. It's a very convincing performance by Halford. Throughout the song, you've got the guitars actually shrieking through some of the parts. So it's got some very, they, it's got some different effects throughout the song that, that, you know, are like haunting and shrieking and, you know, kind of grating or whatever you want to say to have a song written from the perspective of Jack the Ripper is kind of interesting. And, and Rob Halford really delivers in his portrayal and, and the guitars, the dueling guitars, again, a hallmark of Judas priest, the, the, the dueling guitars, the, the harmony riffs and the, just the solos and everything is just terrific. So this is another song they've played a couple of times throughout their live career. I've been lucky enough to see him play it a couple of times. And yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I love the vocals on this because he just really goes for it and shrieks through like, you know, which you know, this, this fearsome, I mean, you, you definitely feel like the fear and you definitely feel the shrieking of a victim <laughs> when, 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 when Halford screams shock, when you, when you, you, you're in for a shock and you, you definitely hear that throughout the song. So yeah, it's, I love it. Yeah. I was like, now we're talking. This is some classic priest right here. Probably the most well-known track on the album. And it's certainly a vehicle for Rob's amazing vocals. What I find interesting about this track is that I really love this like medium range of his voice in this song. You know, he goes like high mm-hmm. in some of the chorus bits and stuff, but but the verse, I really l- love the verse. And I think it's partly because the vocals are very upfront in the mix. It's almost like Rob's in the room with you going, no, 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 you know, and I don't know. I, I, I kind of keep feeling like I want to hear something like this in latter era priest, the way, mm-hmm. the way he sings just the, mm-hmm. the simple, the simpleness of his like medium level non singing yeah. voice. Right. It's it just, I don't know. I dig it. He, he does a touch spoken vocals in this, you know, when he sings the part, you yeah. know, I'm the devil in disguise. It was like, he's, as he's getting ready to stab his victim, he's just like saying, by the way, you picked the wrong dude to hang out with tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm the devil in disguise. One right. star on Yelp. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're not going to get to post that review, my friend. Yeah. Uh, so I like this song, but I got to be honest. It's, and this is since day one, since I, I got into priest when I was 12. 
you know, with British steel and Unleashed Knees. I bought them at the same time when they both, when British steel dropped. I always liked this song, but it never grabbed me like everybody else. I was like, what is wrong with me? I should like this song more than I do. You and should. I do like it. I yeah. do like it. I do like how it prods. Like the guitar work is very prodding. Yeah. And it's almost like you feel like you're walking right. on those streets in London at night. And you're searching. And every time it builds up, it's like somebody just got slashed. See ya. You know, it's like a video game almost. Right. Yeah. And so I like it a lot. And I know it means a lot to to Priest fans. And it was just one of the ones that was just slightly down the list for me. Still think it's great. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I've seen it live a few times and it, it's a home. It's actually been a hallmark for both their lead singers because oh. Tim Ripper Owens, yeah, you know, right. really, that's true. Really built out, belted that's out where, this song. Yeah. That's how they call start calling the Ripper. So, I mean, it's a hall for, it's a hall it's a Halford, it's a Halford trademark. No doubt. There's yeah. no question about it. So. All right. The next song is dreamer deceiver. And this has a definite seventies chilled out sound to start. This could have been on the first album. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when you think of like dying to meet you or something like that, it's got that same kind of seventies sound and it's a sci-fi fantasy that paints, paints a picture. The picked out riff is mesmerizing and the vocals climb and climb throughout the song until Halford is in the stratosphere. The soloing is so tasty toward the end of this song. I mean, it's just incredible. And just when you think Halford can't get any higher, you hear a harmony vocal that just sounds impossible for a human to make where you hear him like singing that high, like where he's going. Uh And, and you're just like, Oh my God, like, is that a, is that him actually singing? And it is. And, and just the, the, it's just almost unimaginable. Like the vocals on this are so ridiculous. And then, and then the guitar playing on this is incredible and, and amazing. So it's, it's just like the culmination of everything coming together to just blow you away. Like it's just, I love this so much. It's just like, I can't even, it's hard for me to describe how much I love this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, come on, man. You give me a little more than that. So I can't hear this song without thinking about the documentary of the same name, which is around the court case that enveloped the band in the 80s mm. because they were accused of influencing the actions of others. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that through their music. And, you know, it was a sad story, but you can't blame the actions of, of people that listen to your music on the people that write the music. You just can't. People have to own their crap. Yeah. Luckily, they were acquitted in that. But uh, yeah, exactly. Musically speaking, it's cool too. <laughs> That's pretty much. Yeah, what this is for me. This is about as ballady as they can get, and proggy at the same time mixed together, which gives it a different twist without being a ballad. Then, you know, because they it just has that seventies vibe, like you said, Tr. Yeah. And when you listen to it, if you just listen to this, and you're kind of like. Okay, I've heard this before from somebody else. I don't know who, but it's mm-hmm. Priest, so it's a little different. To, it's mm-hmm. Their first album off of themselves yet at yeah. this point. Like I'm good with that because I love the first album, and I know not everybody does, but like I, I really dig that '70s Priest sound that you get. Like that that this that this song has, 
and like I said, Dying to Meet You and some of the other songs off the first album that that just have like a very 70s heavy kind of chilled out sound. I really love that from them. And, you know, over time that would kind of start to disappear. And I I kind of like this period of Priest, like their early albums, like as they're basically starting to transform into the metal band that they became, going into Sin After Sin and then, you know, hitting Stained Class, which I feel like by Stained Class, they, they pretty much, you know, became what they were going to be or were really pretty close to what they were going to be at that point. And I... And I love that too, right? I love I love what they became and that that period of like late seventies, early eighties priest. But I I've got a real soft spot in my heart for this seventies sound that they that they were still kind of that they were you know it's, this is their second album, right? So they're they're still doing this, and it's late seventy five when they recorded this. I, I just. I really love it. And I, and I get it, you know, for some people it's, it's not for everybody because the people that really love what they did later, I can understand how this would kind of sound dated or might sound kind of old or kind of like, you know, passe or whatever, but I just love it. Yeah. That, I think that's probably if people don't like it, they think it's, it's a dated sound when, and I, I can, I can see that a little bit from this, you know, this is about, you know, the, they're, they're proggy leanings and they were never a prog band, but they had proggy mm. leanings at yeah. times. This would be one of the songs and they don't, they don't get rid of that until after sin, after sin, yeah. you know, they still have just a little bit there. It changes with staying class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although oddly enough, they bring a little bit back on Hellbent for leather, which some people think is the first true priest metal album, you know, where they have the whole look and the image and all that stuff. Yes. I still think it's staying class, but that's another argument for another time. Okay. So, but this song does lead into something that I think is quite yes. spectacular. So, right. So, Dreamer Deceiver leads right into Deceiver, which is a much more kind of metal, heavy riff kind of space theme. I don't really know what Halford is talking about here, but it couldn't sound more epic. And the soaring vocals, you know, are are going on throughout. And and it ends with that mesmerizing picked picked riff of Dreamer Deceiver to kind of tie it all back into the first part of the song. But yeah, I, again, it's huge. It feels big. It feels epic. And it's 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 just Halford is just soaring above all of it on this with his with his highest vocals. It's it's tremendous. So I said, who uses the same word in two consecutive song titles? Judas Priest does. That's right. And uh, other than that, I was just like, this is heavier than the last one, and they're back on track. Not that they were off track, but I mean back on the metal track. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really one song, to be honest with you. Dreamer, Deceiver, Deceiver. Well, then it should have been Dreamer, Deceiver. Not dreamer, deceiver, deceiver. <laughs> well, they they sort of did the same thing on the off the first album with those four songs that they put together. It's, it's oh, yeah, really like, one long track, but yeah, they winter have, retreat, deep freeze, and all that. Yeah, yeah, and they they title them as individual tracks, but it all flows together. So yeah, which was a common agree. thing in the seventies. A lot of bands did that. Yeah, 
to me, this was dissident aggressor before dissident aggressor was written. Yes. Oh, yes. And, and it, it has that vibe. It's just as good. It's short like dissident aggressor. Mm-hmm. And it it's the one of the hidden gems on the album, to be honest yeah. with you, because you're thinking victim of changes. You're thinking, you know, the Ripper and a few other songs in the album. And then this one comes on. You're like, whoa, where'd this little bad boy come from? <laughs> and it, and it, it's even different than victim of changes. You know, it, it's structurally written different. Yeah. It's, it's written to almost be a metal song. You know, even though that we still don't know what metal is at this point in the seventies, yeah. we right. haven't got there yet. It's coalescing and you can hear it, right? Like this is, that's what's so cool about this album. They, they, they've tapped into something that, you know, they would further refine in the future, but you can hear like, okay, yeah, this is pretty freaking cool. And and they're doing something pretty amazing here. And they've got all the ingredients and it's, and, and, you know, when you hear what came after you, you, you know, you can see where this is going, but like at the time, I'm sure like, I, I can't imagine. Cause of course, you know, yes, I was, I was alive when this album came out, but I didn't listen to it till much later, but I'm, you know, trying to think about like what people were thinking when they, you know, put this on their turntable and listen to this for the first time. It had to be pretty amazing to think about like, wow, you know, this is pretty cool. Like this is really badass. Like some of the stuff on this album is incredible. It's a master of puppets moment. <laughs> Almost. All right. So now we're getting on to side B and it starts with prelude which is a Tipton pen tune that sounds very classical. And yeah, there were other bands that were using classical elements in their work. You know, Deep Purple was kind of sprinkling in things. Richie Blackmore was certainly sprinkling things like that into their work. But this was, this was like primarily a, a keyboard piano kind of classical sound to it. It does seem a little like, look what we can do. And it may have served as the inspiration of Nigel Tufnell's Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> but but it, 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 it's, it's still pretty cool. I mean, it's short. And yes, it's, you know, kind of classical. But I, I kind of think it's cool. I said this is the prelude interlude. It's got decent atmosphere, but... I didn't think it had a lot of meat on the bones. It was kind of a throwaway track for me. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I just, you know, they got a prelude, they got an epitaph on the album. So, I mean, I guess they're... they're, Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that's all it is that it's there for. This is not uncommon. Opeth has done this a lot on their early albums. They have these kind of short piano pieces in between songs. And it's really just a setup piece for what's to follow with the next two songs is the way I look at it. And I don't disagree with you all, George, to me, it's also kind of a throwaway track, but then I agree mm-hmm. with you too, TR, that it kind of, it's juxtaposition. I mean, you got this nice piece, you know, played on whatever keyboard or electric piano, whatever he plays on. And then you get slammed in the head with the next song. Uh-huh. Yes. Which so is kind which of an is- interesting thing. Yeah, which is the next song, which is Tyrant. And here's another song where Halford takes on a persona, 
right? Based on the perspective of the song. So he alternately sings from the perspective of the tyrant character to that of the people oppressed by the tyrant. Help me, help me, I'm oppressed. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so there are tons of tasty solo trade-offs between Glenn and KK in this song. Dual harmony, uh, arpeggios. The vocal harmonies are really cool on this song. I remember, you know, as a singer, listening to the the the, the harmonies on this song, and you know, trying to pick out like the lower harmonies and then listening to the higher harmonies and then trying to sing them. And just thinking to myself, this, this song is so, just so cool and so well constructed. And you've got these different characters, right? You got the tyrant, behold, decide the commander, you know, like he's like a badass and he's like busting everybody's butts. And then you've got like, you know, mourn for us, oppressed in fear, you know, and, and it's, and it's basically sung like you would expect, you know, that they would be singing, right? Like, so I don't recall like a whole lot of bands that were singing from the perspective of these various characters. Like Genesis did a little bit of that on like, um, get them out a lot of that. Yeah, they did a lot of that, (laughs) but, but like there weren't a lot of bands that were kind of taking these character roles and singing from that perspective that I recall. And maybe you guys might remember some other bands that were doing something like that, but I kind of think that, you know, Halford embodied all of the different characters in this very well. And he sings it in a way that really, you know, behold, says I, the commander, you know, or, or, you know, suffer smite from this, my hand. And it's just like, it's like, he's spitting it out of his mouth. And then he takes a completely different tack when he's singing as the, the people that are oppressed. And I, I, I think, that that's a tribute to his his ability as an artist to take on those different roles and sing them as such and so i i think that you know in addition to all the amazing guitar work and the musical qualities of this song the 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 vocal piece and the 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 ability of halford to embody these characters is 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 also a key to what makes this song really successful. I love the riffs on this one. However, I felt it was still a bit clunky. I don't know. It it it, it just wasn't quite as heavy and like in your face as I was expecting it to be, especially with a name like Tyrant. But, you know, they were kind of paving the road they were riding on at this time, so, you know. And yeah. I, I know they're going to get there. Right. So I will say I'm going to bring up my gripe about 70s music and production and value. And this is one of those songs I think suffers compared to the Unleashed in the East version, which, George, if you want to hear that version, you want to hear. Yeah. Go listen to Unleashed in the East again. It is heavier, faster. There's more like meat to the bone on it. What drives me nuts about this song, and I'm curious, TR, what you think is I hate the tired tyrant that he sings yes. during the, the chorus. I hate it. It should I, be it, more. <clears throat> and if you go listen to the live version, he doesn't do that. He's aggressive and hard and fast the way he says tyrant. And that's so I just 
I can't get behind this version of this song as much as I love this song. What is the, what did I say to you when I found out you went to that show and they played Tyrant for the first time in like yeah. 30 some years? I'm like I was like, fuck you. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I waited so long. They played two nights later. And then yeah. I find out they did the same thing with genocide on, on the following tours. Yeah. Which you know, I so, regretted not seeing. So I absolutely mm. love this song, but George, I agree with you. This on this album, it just feels like it's missing something. And I think it's the, the kind of tired. Duh. You do that. <laughs> it's almost like it's the, you know, he's singing from the perspective of the downtrodden, like, Oh, the tyrant's coming again. Yeah. <laughs> but then well, when you hear the live version, it's just the, t- it's the tyrant the whole time. Yeah. You know? So, well, and, and I think, I think part of this might have to do a little bit with, you know, what version you heard first. And for me, like I, so again, I will give props to my buddy, Alex, who, you know, educated me at my young age and said, look, you know, here's what you need to do. And literally like each band that I was like, oh, I want to learn more about them. He'd say, okay, start with the first album and work your way up. And, and so honestly, I didn't listen to unleashed till like much later. And I agree. Like it's got a lot more bite having listened to this many times and have, you know, having gotten used to like the way that this is, this is the version that I kind of, I guess is the definitive version for me, but I, I get where you're coming from and I understand what you mean. And yeah, it does sound a little kind of, now that you mention it, it's, it's like, kind of, oh, I'll, I'll take a nap. Oh, I just, so if I'm picturing seeing them play live, I'm not yeah. picturing Rob just standing at his microphone saying, you know, his hands out, Tyrant. I'm picturing him with his foot up on the monitor, yeah. all in leather, right. and just belting out Tyrant really fast. Yeah. And so... You know, yeah, I've moved past the kimonos and the sashes that he was okay. still wearing on Sting yes. class, you know. Right. So it's, that's my only issue. I mean, that's I absolutely fair. love absolutely, No, that's fair. I don't know. He just sounds like maybe he recorded that when he hadn't got much sleep. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and that's possible because, again, they were like pretty wiped out and, you know, when they were putting this song, putting this album together. So the next track is Genocide. And. This is pretty heavy stuff, right? Genocide, right? Not like, cool, bro. I, I don't think like a lot of bands were talking about something this drastic at this time. Alfred sings from the perspective of a person whose race is being eradicated. Definitely paints the pictures with the words here. And this song has a lot of cool parts to it, right? The, the main riff comes in, then you get this sin after sin bridge. Then it goes into this solo section, and then it goes back to the main riff. And then the buildup to the slice to the left, slice to the right section at the end, till it, you know, it just fades out to soloing guitars, which... It, it, you know, it, it kind of bucks the trend of any kind of classic rock construction of a song. I mean, it, it, it doesn't adhere to any of the, any of that. Like it's completely, it's completely its own thing. So the, so you've got, you've got like a really heavy topic. You've got ripping guitars. 
you've got multiple parts that are really diverse and different and but they're all but they all get sewn together so smooth and seamlessly uh, i just feel like this is a signature priest tune and i really really love it yes this is a killer tune heavy again i'm going to reference back to unleash and east because i think what i like better on that version is they do this kind of cool intro and they do kind of a cool middle section but you don't have to listen to that version to still like this song because it's awesome off of this album uh a little shorter it's about five and a half minutes compared to almost eight on the live album Love it. I'm with you on this. I agree with everything you said. This is one of their heavier songs. I love the reference to Sin After Sin in it. It's almost like saying, hey, we got some more coming for you. Or it just <laughs> means that they were looking back on the album and said, hey, this would be kind of a cool album title, Sin After <laughs> Sin. I like it. You know, so, yeah. Not much more to say. This is one of the early, their ver- early versions of metal from them. Like Deceiver, also in Victim of Changes. This is where it's starting to show. I agree. Cool. Okay, so the next track is Epitaph. And again, this is more of the classical soft side of Judas Priest. Halford kind of croons on this song. KK is on the record in his book as saying he didn't care for this. And in his opinion, it wasn't representative of the band. I love this band, but parts of this even make me cringe a little. (laughs) But, you know, I think there were future songs where the softer side of Judas Priest, like Last Rose of Summer, Beyond the Realms of Death, uh, other other executions of this style were better better executed than what, what was here. I know what they were trying to accomplish, and I'm sure that they were trying to show, like, hey, we're not all just metal. We can do this softer side. <laughs> but We've got I, feelings. Exactly. And that we can, you know, that... So, yeah, I, I kind of feel like I get what they were trying to do, but they I don't feel like it really came together as well here. Yeah. For me, this is like Rob Halford does Billy Joel. <laughs> do you hear that? Like, at least, you know, in the beginning. I'm like, what is he doing with his voice there? That's so un-Rob-like. But yeah. at the same time, I don't hate this. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I don't hate it either. It's just that, you know, uh, there were some of the some of the backing vocals on this kind of sounded thin. Uh, and I think that's more of a production issue than than anything else. But it, it kind of it kind of reduces the power of this song, I feel, unfortunately. So I, I agree with KK on this song. I'm not big on it. I actually like prelude more than this. Yeah. And wow. it's, uh, you know. But I will say something, George, and this is for you now. In my notes, I wrote, reminds me of of Priest trying to be queen. I did uh, not look I did not look up anything. I did this was just off me list. And I was like, God, I get kind of a, a queen vibe with the vocals. Billy Joel. So I go and I look on Wikipedia because everybody knows everything is real on Wikipedia. Everything. Of course. And I wanted to look at something about the album. I wanted to look up while we were talking. And Somebody actually did a kind of brief write-up on each song, which is interesting. You don't see that too often on there. And for Epitaph, it says, a quiet track with piano backing and queen-like layered vocals. Oh, no. And I was like, I didn't even look that up, but I feel justified. So it just reminds me of that. Yeah. And so I can see the Billy Joel reference, too. 
it's just like TR said, and like you said, it's out of the norm for them. Yeah. Uh, they're still working out the first album. It's, you know, you, you never make that much of a shift because all these songs were written around this. Stuff. I'm sure some of these songs are written prior to the first album. Yeah. No victim of changes was. Well, yeah, so, for sure. You know, they, they have these riffs are bouncing around. And they're incomplete yet. And they, they save them. I mean, the biggest culprit of that is Eddie Van Halen. I mean, he saved everything. Oh yeah. So, Kirk Hammett did too, but then he lost them all. Well, he said he'd had them and then he lost them, which means <laughs> did he really have them? <laughs> I know. So yeah, it's, it is what it is at this point in time. Every band has one of these songs during this period. So, yeah. All right. The final song on the album is called Island of Domination. And Halford says he was reading a lot of sci-fi and Asimov at this time. And you can hear some of that in this, in this song. I like the transitions to different sections of this song. The middle swaggering riff is particularly gnarly. Gnarly. Uh, It comes back to the main riff again and then trails off with, with, with repeated vocals. I, I like this song and you know, that, that middle riff is really pretty, pretty badass. And that, that's a cool riff, right? I mean, I, this is a great song, so I love it. Uh, it's a good way to end the album. And uh, yeah, I, that's pretty much all I got on that one. Yeah. This is my second favorite song on the album. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. It's, I don't know. It's the song I think of when you say Sad Wings of Destiny. Even mm-hmm. though the Ripper's on here, this is the song I think of. I'm going, oh, yeah, Island Domination, yeah, yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I agree. It's a super cool album-closing track. Very ap- appropriate. Yeah, I, I am in agreement with both of you. To me, this is the hidden gem on the album. Mm. This is the song you you don't think of right away, if unless you're George. Unless you're George. You, and you're yeah. like, well, it's the second song I think of on the album. Right. It's it's not underrated. I think it's just unknown by a lot of fans. Yeah. Because yeah. they maybe don't get past the two or three songs they already know on the album, which, you know, most casual fans are hit fans. Not knocking mm. them. That's just what they like. Dive, yeah. dive. <laughs> I will say Deep that. Deep dive. This is about as doomy as priests will ever get because that middle section is kind of doomy for them yeah it kind of has that pace it's not traditional doom as we know it but it's got a little bit in there it's you know it reminds me epitaph and island of domination sort of remind me of dreamer deceiver and deceiver they kind of go hand in hand together a little bit you know and the way that the songs bleed together i think dreamer deceiver deceiver's better at doing that because if we went from genocide to Island of Domination, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not slagging on the song. I'm just saying I would be fine with that. Yeah. It's a cool tune. It's, it's a great lesser known track. And it's probably why my favorite period of the band is from this point to stained class. Those three albums are group wise, not all my favorites, but I like that period the best. Yeah. So well, great way yeah, to end the album. You know, I'm with you on that one, John. Mm-hmm. So according to Halford in his book, Confess, this was also the time that they worked on a cover of Diamonds and Rust, but because it didn't fit into the mood of the album, they held it back. So it's interesting that this is when they actually worked on that, but they didn't 
put it on the album. Now, isn't there uh, two versions of this song too? There, yes, that, that that's true. And I can't recall the circumstances around that, but I do. Yeah, there were, there were two different versions of that. So the one on sin after sin, I think is the more hard rock metalish version than this one. It was, I think a little slower, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. I could be yeah. wrong about that. Right. No, but that, I just wanted to throw that in because, you know, this this was this was the time that they actually worked on that, which yeah. I I was unaware of until I read Halford's book. Yeah, I I had thought that I I'd, I'd read that somewhere. It's again, I'm not a super covers fan, and that's one of their covers I'm not so big on. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Unleashed or uh, the Green Man Alicia, which I think is actually great. I love their version of that. Yeah, yeah Diamonds are us. Just so, <laughs> so just one other little note to add to this Uh, as you know for a long time priest did not own the rights to these first two albums because they they broke their contract with gull to to when when they you know made their next album sin after sin with cbs so by abandoning their contract they they surrendered their rights to the first two albums but earlier this year in April, we we learned that Reach Music had acquired the rights to the first two albums, so that and and that's related to elements of Priest. So they're they've they basically through Reach Music have acquired the rights to those early Gull albums, which is a great thing because Gull for a long time had just kind of retreaded all that stuff and hadn't really done much to it. They and milked I think it for everything. They, they totally did, and and I think, I think now that now that the that elements of the band own this, I think you're going to see some remasters come out. You're going to see some 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 stuff that you know that fans have really wanted for a long time. So that's kind of the, the yeah exactly <laughs> yes. Come on, do it, everyone else. Fiftieth anniversary, do it. Yeah. Everybody else is doing it. That's right. So anyway, that that's kind of a silver lining to some of this stuff. When you think about some of that early Gull stuff, the the first two albums that that kind of been out of reach for the band for many many years, to be able to start to bring that back into the fold of the the Judas Priest library, I think is going to be a great thing. Boy, they must have made all their money off the live albums for those songs, and that's only for a few songs. When they surrendered their rights, you know, what yeah, they got. That's a good Every, point. They were probably all making money off of Victim of Changes and The Ripper, you know, Genocide and Tyrant off of Unleashed Nice. That's, that kind of sucks, you know, so, but hey, just real quick, if you guys could, where would you put this album in your, because we're all Priest fans. Oh my. Just, if you can't, then don't. I'm just curious. I'd need to look at the discography. Yeah. See, for me, it's number four. It's I would yeah, say up there. Yeah, I would yeah. say somewhere around there. I mean British Steel, Screaming, Defenders, uh, this one. Yeah. So, so yeah. there you go. <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah. Just curious. I yes. don't know like uh, yeah, I I love these early albums and so I don't know. It would be I've never honestly I never really ranked them but I don't know between this and Sin After Sin and Stained Class, I mean Man, that's pretty tough. I'm not yeah. sure, but it's definitely 
top five. Yeah, me too. I I just thought of when we did it for Led Zeppelin. It yeah. just made me think for this one. Yeah. See, for me, I got stained class and screaming and painkiller, and then uh, this one comes in. Yeah. So I kind of you forgot defenders, John. And then sin after sin. What's coming after that? <laughs> yeah. And then British Steel. <laughs> I have never ever not hidden from that fact that defenders is down my list i know it's i I like it 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 was it it. it was my first you know and it was probably will's first so that's why we are where we are Uh, which is funny british steel was my first and it's not in my top five that was my first one toy to you no just (laughs) some an idiot so (laughs) all right awesome so we've sort of reached the end we've given you three albums now go out there and see if uh, you agree with what we say but I have one more thing to add. These guys don't even know I'm going to say it. What? My friend uh, Derek asked if we could mention like new rock releases, you know, because he's he, he, he doesn't have time to go out and figure things out as many people don't. And they turn to places like, I don't know, podcasts to tell them about things that they should listen to. And when he said this, I was like, oh, that's a good idea. But I didn't really have anything on deck. Now I kind of do. I mean, it, it leans more of it, it. It's an interesting album. I've mentioned this, John, to the the pod, the Metalheads crew. So you may be familiar with this, but there's a band called 1476 and their album In Exile. And this is one of those albums. I, we got a promo for it and I was like, I don't know where to put this. It really is a child of many genres. It's like neo-folk punk rock like literally punk rock mixed with black metal and post-rock it's it's kind of weird musically it's i I, you know it's very it's very odd like people that are into like classic rock and things like that you're probably not going to dig this It, it definitely leans more in the metal direction however i would be hard pressed to call it a metal album. And so I thought this might be the place to talk about it. It's almost got a, like vocally, the, the first, the first track is sort of an anomaly, but after that vocally, he sort of has a punky snarl. That's sort of like rancid meets social distortion. Probably means nothing but that's quite a description right there. But, but then, and and then, and then the musicals just go off like down this totally like blast beat metal, black metal thing. And he'll scream a little. And then, and then it comes, it's, it's weird. So I definitely recommend this. If you like interesting, different rock music. Hmm. So there you go, Derek. Try that one. Check it out. All right. Anything else before we go? Onward to episode four. Yes. Oh, man. Now we got to pick something else. Yeah. Well, I'm ready. That's I'm looking fun. forward to it. I don't have anything firmly ensconced yet. We'll see. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. See ya. Bye. And we done.